Welcome, listeners. Welcome back to another episode of the ATG Weightlifting Podcast. This time we're at home. I'm Gregor Winter, together with Ned Aram and Dr. Boffer, who was in the Dominican Republic recording Pan Ams. Hello, everyone. Hello. It's good to be back in air conditioning. and I'm here as well. Um, I'm not in air conditioning, but it's not really that uncomfortable, so I'm, I'm good to go. Perfect. Then let's get started. So we thought we'd do a little episode um, recapping our trips now that we're home again, because we didn't really talk that much about our trips while we were on the road. Um, so we have a lot of catching up to do. So where do we start, Ned? Where do you want to start? Um, I, I guess, you know, just to make sure we cover it, we should probably talk about the tote bag contest real quick. Good point. I almost forgot about this. So the um, tote bag contest, um, we only had one. Yeah, no, we, of course we had only one winner, but <laughs> we only had one winner. <laughs> we only had one winner. What am I it's amazing. What am I talking about? Um, like yeah, only because, one person won the you know the gold medal. It's crazy. Yeah, because the Mohammed Nobat from Pakistan uh, did not compete, so that meant Hunter won with four or nine or something, right? And he was the closest to. To the result yeah um i remember yeah hunter, hunter hunter huntington hayes is the one who won so i actually need to contact him and figure out which colors he wants and all that stuff yeah so cool. is he gonna get it i don't know anything about this contest is he gonna get a tote bag like the ones that you gave to me and greg wait Similar. dr buffer uh, did Dr. Buffer not listen to our podcast? Yeah, Dr. Buffer doesn't listen to the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't listened to anything. I don't I, literally nothing. I was busy. I was I was busy shooting uh, Pan Ams. I was living the, the competitions. Nice. How was it being back at a competition? Seeing weightlifting? Uh, it was good. It was cool. It was a little surreal um, to be around weightlifting again and it's weird to think that it's been over a year i mean i went down to georgia for the training camp at power and grace and i think that's the only like weightlifting trip that i had done since roma 2020 which was in january 2020 so it had been like well over a year since i'd been to a competition uh it's amazing how sort of normal it just felt pretty quickly though it was like all right we're back it's a competition and you're just used to like everybody's wearing masks except for the competitors and the people who think they don't need to wear masks for some reason. Yep. And you just sort of, yeah, it was like, all right, this is, you know, there are tech stops more frequently than I want and people don't know what's going on. I was like, IWF is back to normal. This is, this is great. Yeah. I thought this felt the same for me. Everything felt back to normal, like day one. Yeah. Shooting training hall, shooting competition um, felt like the good old days again. How was the training hall? So uh, people who saw any of your stories should see, like there were those divide, like everybody had a cubicle essentially. So how was that? Annoying. Annoying. And, yeah. Yeah. Limiting. And I mean, it, of course it limits the angles you can get. So yeah. you pretty much can only shoot from like two, three positions and all are from the front, which is not a good angle to shoot weightlifting from. It did stop the virus though. So that was good. That was good. I mean, I felt <laughs> safe. And then you have to add, like, there's a bunch of, like, coaches and massage therapists walking in, in your shot and other photographers being there also wanting to get a shot, or videographers, rather. So, again, yeah, I said it before, 
technically, from a technical standpoint, the footage is the best ATG footage we've ever shot because of the new camera and how it looks and stuff. But it's also the worst competition uh, training hall mm. footage we've ever shot because of the angles and yeah, how it just every background is just a little cubicle, which doesn't look great. Do we want to talk about the uh, COVID precautions at the various continental championships or lack of COVID precautions? I don't I, Maybe you guys already addressed this. Um, we didn't talk about it extensively, but I mean, there really weren't. And we talked about it a little bit. There just weren't that many. Like there were, there were some attempts, but I would say like ineffective, but I would also wonder, you know, how effective could it have been? You know, like I, I always think about like, if I was running the meet, what would I have done differently? Mm-hmm. And like, there's a lot of things that are difficult. I mean, just with the amount of space they had in there for the training hall, there wasn't a good way to set it up for, you know, COVID precautions. They, they would have just needed a different venue entirely. Yeah. This training hall was very, very small compared to other training halls like worlds or anything we've, we've been shooting in the past. Um, but I've seen at Pan Am's you guys' training hall, there were no dividers, right? Buffer? No, in fact, you'd be you'd have a hard time getting the platforms any closer. In all seriousness, like I don't think you could physically put the platforms closer without stacking them on each other. And even in like like I don't know how you could run in between platforms if you were filming and not hit people or weights or coaches or anything. And the room was actually big; like it was a pretty big hall, uh, unair conditioned, of course. But they only used like, which I love. I love. I was like, this is great. I'm just immediately sweating and uncomfortable. All the <laughs> the gear, camera gear loves really hot, humid environments. So it's it's perfect to test it out. Yeah, especially if you come from a from a cold hotel room. Yeah, and from a, so every time I came off the bus and went into the venue, I I would pull myself out and feel the gear like sweating because oh, the bus was well air conditioned and the venue was not. But they only used like half the training hall for all these platforms. Like mm. they could have spaced it out much more, but for some reason they chose not to. Interesting. I've dealt with this many Pan Ams. I can tell Bafa has not been to many Pan Ams. This is my first Pan Ams. I'd never been, I'd never been to a continental championship. This I've is also ATG's, Worlds. ATG's first Pan yeah. Ams. Yeah. yeah. This was a premiere for us. Um, so yeah, the, uh, the Pan Ams... I would say other than the U.S. and Canada, I have never experienced any sort of air conditioning. Actually, a lot of the the athletes and coaches and just essentially people from a lot of the Central and South American countries actually think that air conditioning is bad for you. Like they think it, it gets you sick. That's what most of Europe thinks as well. Yeah. Yep. So in Italy, say. Hmm. Yeah. So they um, like they get they get like upset almost if there's like air conditioning. Like I remember at the Pan Am games in Toronto where it was actually nice and comfortable in, in the arena, they were all like in like winter jackets complaining to me and keep in mind, this was in July, (laughs) you know, and it was like, uh, I don't know what the degrees were in Celsius outside, but it was like 80 degrees outside. That's probably like 25 or something. Mm -hmm. And, um, they they were all inside just like shivering, even though it was it was just normal inside. It was maybe like seventy degrees, but they were they were just shivering in winter jackets, like teeth chattering, <laughs> telling me like like how terrible it was. Whereas I go to Colombia in like Cartagena, which is just an insanely humid, 
just terrible place to be from a climate perspective for me. Hmm. And, uh, you know, they're, they're all just like super comfortable. Meanwhile, I bring two fans with me, plug them in and like all the officials try and steal them from me because they, they want the fans <laughs> because they're in these like IWF suits. Meanwhile, I'm sitting there in like a t-shirt and like lightweight, you know, like Lululemon shorts or something like that, which are, you know, as, you know, as non, uh, hot as I can basically wear other than just not wearing clothing. And then, um, you know, that, that's kind of how it works. Like they, they hate it here. I hate it there. <laughs> but, you know, I, I, sh- I should mention, I don't hate, uh, necessarily the Pan Am countries. I just hate the weather in a lot of them. Yeah. Uh, just- yeah. We should add that Ned really likes, um, his air conditioning. I've shared many hotel rooms with you and as, you've as turned, and you turned, um, uh, our room into cryo chambers. Yeah. By the way, I, I want to mention, I misspoke. I actually have been to a Pan Ams before. I keep forgetting this, but I was at the 2009 Pan Ams Where when they that? were in Chicago. Ooh. And they were held in conjunction with the national championships. And I actually lifted. I did not lift in the Pan Ams, but I lifted like as a national championships athlete. And Buffer, you lifted at Pan Ams. We can claim that. I now. mean, technically, I lifted at Pan Ams. So yes, technic, yeah. very technic. I think they were. I think they just mixed people in the session. To be honest, as well, like that's funny. I don't remember how it were. It was like Pan Ams and like Ibero championships too, if I'm remembering. Because I swear, I think Lydia Valentin was there. I need to look into this. But no, Lydia. Lydia was there for that meet. She was right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I wasn't. I wasn't following weightlifting at the time, but I've, I've seen like, you know, information about that meet. Yeah. She was there. Um, that venue was well air conditioned. Basically all the teams hate it. Like for instance, at, um, in 2017 in Miami, Buffy, were you there for that? No, I guess you weren't. Um, that meet had some incredible air conditioning, like really, really good to the point where I was like, uh, it's a little chilly in here, but I, you know, I oh, like God. It. Must have been like minus ten. Oh yeah, like in the bathroom, it was. Uh, I once again, I'm not not that good with Celsius and you know whatever. But in the bathroom, it was it was in like the mid 60s, which felt like really cold. Uh, that is it felt, felt amazing. Um, but it was in like a tent because they um, they held it outside of the casino or whatever. It, it was basically on like an like an Indian casino or native American casino outside of like kind of like an hour West of Miami and mm-hmm. um, basically right on the edge of like the Everglades. Like literally if you, if you, if you drove like a mile to the West, you were, you were in the Everglades, you were in like the national park Everglades. Um, but the, uh, the tent that held had like outside of the casino just had like unbelievably good AC. It was so great. But all, all the Colombians were constantly, like, you know, complaining to me about it. You know, they're always complaining about uh, how sick they're getting from it and everything. Remember the first day in Pattaya when they turned on the AC and it was super cold? It was freezing. freezing. It was freezing. And it was outside. It must have been, like, almost 90 degrees Fahrenheit and super humid. And I was sitting there thinking, I am uncomfortably cold. And I'm like, Nat, like, I, I, in a hotel room, mid-60s is perfect, if not lower. And I was uncomfortable. I don't remember not liking it. I remember it being nice and cold and being like, this is great. I mean, even Steve said, Sick Angle said, um, man, I'm from the US and this is pretty cold here. <laughs> I remember liking it. 
If I, I mean, if I remember correctly, I remember thinking like it was incredible how well they AC'd it in there. Do you remember <laughs> when we were in? Do you remember when we were in Tashkent in 2018 and like yeah. there was no AC the first day and then they turned it on and it was like just spectacular. Oh yeah, it was just that was just. Remember when we were afraid? Oh my god, do we have to shoot in this in these conditions for two weeks? It was it was really hot. And that other yeah. training hall, that second training hall, hadn't. I mean, it was just a like school gym. Yeah, that one was <laughs> really hot too. And it was like forty five degrees Celsius. Jesus. Yeah, I've got a great picture of Harrison Morris standing in that other training hall where there was a fan like blowing up his shirt, but it just looks like he, you know, is pregnant. <laughs> Nice. Um, I'll, I'll have to dig that up for the podcast page, the picture of Harrison Morris in the hot oh, yeah. Tosh training hall. Making a note. Um, yeah. I think Pan Am's is, is definitely the roughest meet for me in terms of... Climate. Uh, yeah, climate. It's, it's just consistently very, very uncomfortable. And I remember... Um, so the, the first... It wasn't the first Pan Ams I went to, but it was the first time that I really had to deal with condensation in the camera equipment. Mm -hmm. um, at 2015 Junior Pan Ams in Cartagena, which was the first of two times, wait, three times? Two, I don't remember exactly how many times I've been there, at least two. Um, the uh, hotel room that we were in didn't have any sort of balcony or window you could open or anything like that. And so, you know, the stuff would sit in the hotel room overnight, you know, the camera gear and everything. It would get really cold because obviously we had the hotel room really cold. And then we would go to the venue for the meet and it would just be super foggy. You know, we couldn't we yeah. couldn't shoot for like the first half an hour that we were there um, because it was just so much condensation. So then what we started to do was we would go um, we would go early. And then we would lay the stuff out in the parking lot to let it like heat back up and let the condensation burn Jesus. off. Hmm. Um, and so that, that was how we adjusted for that. So that, okay. So that was in 2015 junior Pan Ams, 2016 senior Pan Ams were also in Cartagena. It was a different venue, but exact same problems. So this time what I did was I made sure to book a venue, sorry, book a um, hotel or, you know, Airbnb or whatever that did have a, have a, covered porch so essentially i could leave the stuff outside overnight it would never get cold and then when i would go to the venue it would just be fine and i wouldn't have any condensation remember that's what we did in 2015 asian championships as well that was the first time i experienced uh, these conditions i think there we left it in the bathroom so it wouldn't get too cold right maybe bathroom or maybe porch yeah or balcony no there was no porch at that hotel hmm um, I remember that though, but we, yeah, what, what we did was we left it in the bathroom and there was no AC in the bathroom. Right. So what we did was we left yeah, it in yeah, the yeah. bathroom and then we closed the door. So the door, like it wouldn't cool down as much in there. Hmm. And I did something similar when I was in um, Fiji for Junior Worlds in 2019, mm -hmm. uh, almost exactly two years ago. And that, that one, I had a, um, I had like a porch. So what I did was I would just leave the stuff outside um because yeah it just it takes so long for it to uh like kind of like heat up and you know it's probably bad to like leave your camera gear in the sun in the parking lot for 45 minutes and it's also a pain to watch because then you have to sit in the parking lot for 45 minutes and just get beat down on by the sun 
And you don't want to just leave thousands of dollars in camera gear in a parking lot and go back inside. It also um, can be good for the like precision optics and stuff. Like, yeah, that's what I'm saying. It's just it's just not good for your stuff to just leave it in that sort of yeah. environment. So anyway, that's a big that's a big hassle, especially with Pan Ams and really any hot humid country where they're not um, you know doing much in the way of AC. Hmm. Um, there was like mild AC at the at the meet in Fiji, but it wasn't very good. Um, so, and it was it was pretty hot there. Yeah, we were mentioning like we were pretty lucky in Tashkent for Asians, like perfect temperatures throughout. Yeah, it was really nice there. You know, it was like warm enough that you weren't cold, but it was it wasn't so hot that you were. There was only really one day I was sweating really on the walk to the venue. Um, it was nice, and it's not you know it's not too humid there too which is nice and we have we had a personally i would say that the worst part was that our our hotel room ac really did not work very well it worked for like two days and then yeah but for the most it part it wasn't off. working that well yeah. um like most of the time it was just way too hot in there at night i really should have just bought a fan um i really yeah. regret that because I, i think that's part of the reason why I, i didn't sleep that well there some nights and i think mm. that, like uh, you know i guess we'll mention it but towards the end of the trip This was kind of a, a scary thing for both Gregor and I. Yep. But I mean, uh, I'll just I'll just lay out the timeline for the listener. So basically, the the meet was ending on a Sunday. Both Gregor and I were flying out at 2 a.m. on Monday, so we were basically like getting back from the meet, getting some food. You know, we have a couple hours at the hotel or whatever, and then going to the airport. So it wasn't like a long turnaround. So basically we had planned to get our COVID test because we both needed a COVID test to kind of like board the plane. You know, it's pretty normal at this point. We planned to get our COVID test on Saturday and then get the results on Sunday and then, you know, go to the airport Sunday night. So on Friday I wake up and I have like a, a bad, like runny nose. Um, I don't really have any other symptoms, um, but I have a bad runny nose. And so I'm like, crap, am I getting sick? And keep in mind, Ned has gotten his first uh, COVID shot, got his first yeah. vaccine shot. So we were like thinking, oh my God, is it just because he had his first shot that he has a really, really mild case with just a runny nose? Or is it yeah. just a runny nose? And so you think about all these things, all these things. Yeah. Yeah. So I, um, I didn't have any other symptoms. I could still... Uh, smell and taste food. I didn't have a cough. I didn't have a fever. Right. You constantly um, made sure that you tested your taste. That's what you told me. Yeah. I was, I was literally just like walking around. Um, just sniffing stuff. on people. <laughs> yeah. I, I was literally just like walking. I, I, would, I literally like went into the bathroom at one point just to be like, okay, yeah, I can still, it still smells like shit in here. But uh, I was just making sure that I didn't have any other symptoms because literally all day i mean not to get too graphic on on friday literally all day my nose just like dripping like yep. just you know it was just very very uncomfortable especially when you're wearing a mask and you have to like wipe your nose and try to shoot weightlifting that's just like it was it was just so so uncomfortable you know um it's bad enough when you don't have a mask but you know in some ways the mask makes it a lot less comfortable hmm. so then um It kind of continued on Saturday. It was still still pretty bad on Saturday. Um, I mean, on Saturday, I was kind of relieved when you woke up and you said, okay, it definitely has not gotten worse. So I was like, okay, this is actually good news. Then 
like if you woke up on Saturday and it said, Oh my God, I have a headache and like I have joint pain. I was like, Oh God, we are yeah. staying here in Tashkent for the next three weeks. Hmm. Yeah. So, you know, I didn't, um, I didn't have anything worse really on Saturday. It was still just essentially just like runny nose and no other symptoms. I had like a very, very, maybe like mild sore throat, but I think that's just from like the, you know, sleeping with like a runny nose, you get like a very mild sore throat, but it didn't feel like a, a cold, you know, I, I normally your throat feels like a little more like swollen and inflamed, whereas it didn't have any of that. It just felt a little bit, a little bit sore. Hmm. Um, and that dissipated through the day. So I, I was like, all right, I was like, I'm pretty sure I don't have COVID, but obviously, I mean, I have to get a test either way, um, for the flight. So I was like, you know, at least the test will tell me like, oh, is this just like a super weird COVID infection that I have? Of, of course I was still being careful. I was still like, you know, wearing my mask. I wasn't, you know, pulling it off to talk to people and all this stuff. But, hmm. um, you know, I, you know, we, we got the test and, Luckily, the test was negative for both of us. So, yeah. and and I haven't had any other symptoms pop up. And actually, by Sunday, um, the like actually the last day of the meet, and like kind of before we were flying back, most of the symptoms had subsided. It was just it was still going on, but way more mild than Friday, Saturday, and um, and flying yeah. back actually wasn't bad. Usually, flying with like a runny nose would be bad, but um, I just I was just super self conscious on the flight of like any blowing my nose because like i didn't want people around me to be like is this guy like mm-hmm. is this mm-hmm. guy have covid and he's you know uh and he's flying even though you know whatever so i was just very self-conscious about uh you know blowing my nose or whatever but um yeah we did we did get back fine but i personally think that i just didn't sleep well at a, a bunch of the nights at the meet because um yeah you woke up hard Times. Yeah, it was like I it was like 80 degrees in that hotel room and that's just way too hot for me to sleep comfortably. So hmm. I, I I actually think if I had gotten a fan, I wouldn't have had this problem because I would have slept great and then I, you know, your immune system just gets lowered when you uh when you're you're just not sleeping well. Right, and that was one thing I really made sure this trip that I don't have any like like constant 5-hour nights or something. Like I really made sure to get like my like as much sleep as I could, basically. And for the most part, we were pretty successful in that. That we, I mean, even you, you slept more than, for example, in Ashgabat, where we killed ourselves filming. Well, it's it's different because, you know, at this meet, we didn't really do B sessions and we were essentially just doing two sessions a day. Even where there was a B session, it was usually like three people and not, you know, any anything that where, you know, we were like, all that interest in getting the footage. And so, um, you know, it's just easy. Like we kept saying like, Hey, this reminds me of Ningbo because right. Ningbo two years ago was just, uh, you know, a pretty relaxing meet. We didn't, you know, to, to me, like everyone, everyone was commenting to me like, Oh, you must be tired. And I'm like, like tired. Like this is two sessions a day with like, kind of like a shitty training hall. Uh, I was like, I'm not tired. Like this is like, this is like relaxing. Yeah, especially towards the end of the competition was pretty easy. I mean, in the beginning, there was when the training was going on, I was, um, those were long days still. Like my legs hurt, my knee hurt that I got surgery on. And well, I stood up the whole meet, you know, mm-hmm. so that, that ne- it never really got 
that much easier for me. But even even the training hall days weren't that um, weren't that tough at this meet, in my opinion. Um, like Ashgabat was basically right up there with the hardest I'd ever worked. Um, because I mean, there were, well, there were a couple things about Ashgabat. One was that um, I was there by myself. You know, like for instance, at at some meets, like for instance, at 2015 Worlds, that was a hard meet also. But the difference with 2015 Worlds was that I had two employees there with me. So, you know, one could go in early, another one could stay late. I could be working on, you know, unloading footage and blah, blah, blah. And 2017 Worlds was similar because we had a booth there. So I had to worry about that. But, you know, I had, uh, you know, multiple people there with me to help. So it's kind of like I'm able to like offload some aspects of certain things. And, and so, you know, all senior worlds are, I would say, are always hard. Um, it's always a lot of work, but it's, it's different when you have, you know, people there to help you and you can kind of like split up some of the duties. Whereas in Ashgabat, it was just me. And obviously Hideyuki was helping me with shooting. There was not a... Uh, That's been every world so far for me. It's been like that, just me. Yeah, but the difference is, is that... Until, I mean, even now your files aren't that big, but you've never shot like some of these like massive files that take a really long time to unload. Hmm. Yeah, um, we talked like about I, this, even in Tashkent um, that 2017 was it, the trip that almost broke you with unloading. Yeah, I mean, I, I would have possibly just like ended up in the hospital from exhaustion if, <laughs> if I hadn't gotten a hold of like an, a two terabyte SSD that. I had like express ship from Amazon to Gregor's hotel room. Um, that was just like, that was just way too much. I was shooting in a file format that was, that was just massive. Um, Can you imagine there was a time when we didn't shoot to SSDs? Wow. You mean didn't unload to SSDs? Didn't, yeah. Didn't unload to SSDs. Yeah. I mean, I'm the one that converted you to that. I was I like, know. dude, you need to do this because it will change your life. Like, <laughs> and like the idea of, of dumping my footage at night to like a spinning disc is insane to me. And yeah. I don't mean like overnight where it's duplicating. I mean like actually waiting for my footage to go onto a spinning disc is insane. It literally bought us like hours of sleep. That's what we bought with these drives. Yeah. yeah. It's very, very worth it. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. There's, there's, I was just talking with Gregor about how, um, there's certain things that I just wouldn't leave home without. And one of them is, is what's called a geared tripod head, which is where you can kind of like turn a knob and make small adjustments. Gregor just got his first a few days ago. Mm -hmm. um, I ordered it in Tushkin still while playing with yours. Yeah, exactly. You saw mine, which, which is funny because you've I've seen, seen mine a bunch of times. I, I, I've been using it for five years I know. and you've I seen know. it so many times. And then somehow this time you just saw me turn it once and you're like, okay, I'm buying it. Yeah. It's just so annoying to yeah, do it the other way, the old way. Um, anyway, so the, the, the beard head is one thing I would not leave home without. And I would, I would put SSDs for, for footage even above that. Yeah, like 100%. other than other than the camera, there's no bigger necessity than SSDs for <laughs> for saving for like dumping the footage because it's just I would just lose so much sleep for no reason. Buffa, did you have? Did you bring enough SSDs? No, I only brought one. <laughs> you only brought so, one, but well, you don't you don't need a lot of SSDs because if you basically go from your cards to the SSD and then overnight yeah. go from that SSD That's... to your spinning discs and then the next day reuse that SSD. 
That's fine. Exactly. That's that was, so that was what I did. I would just copy to the SSD in between sessions. And then at night, usually I had time to do to one spinning disc before bed. And then I would wake up and start to a second spinning disc while eating breakfast. The only thing that sucked at Pan Am's is almost every day was four sessions. I mean, you can go to two spinning discs overnight and it's fine. Yeah, just do it in parallel. You can do that. Yeah. I didn't have uh, I only have two USB ports on my laptop and I didn't have like a dongle or anything. So I had to go ah. the one SSD to the other to the HD, to the hard drive. Yeah. You have the 2015 MacBook Pro, right? Yep. So doesn't Still that have uh, chugging along? But that has a Thunderbolt 2, right? Yeah. Yeah. So what you do with that is they make Thunderbolt 2 to USB 3 adapters and you can just make a third USB port. Good to know for Pan Am's 2021, I guess. I think I, I think I still have like three of those, like the uh, Thunderbolt 2 to USB 3s. Because hmm. that's what I used to do. I used to have that laptop. And I, I mean, it wasn't, I didn't have a 2015, but I used to have that same form factor. And mm-hmm. I used to um, make another port out of the, out of the Thunderbolt 2. It worked pretty well. Um, but yeah, the uh, the copying to spinning disks works well in parallel. But, you know, the one thing that I think Gregor's going to be doing soon is what I do now, which is my daily SSD. I mean, the, the listeners really, really do not care about any of this. <laughs> but I will, I'll, I, will, I, will explain, I will explain my, uh, my technical setup a little bit. All right. Um, but what I do is my daily dump drive is onto a Thunderbolt 3 NVMe SSD. And the difference between that and a SATA SSD is a SATA SSD tops out at around maybe like 400 to 500 hmm. read-write speed. Yeah. And the NVMe is roughly four times that fast. Yeah. Um, and so what's nice about that is that means that I can, at the end of the day or during the day, I can dump from an SSD that I shot my video footage on, like a CFast card that I shot my photo footage on, and uh, a fast SD card that I shot the training hall footage on, I can dump from all three of those simultaneously into my NVMe SSD, and it doesn't slow down. If I was dumping all of that onto a SATA slower, basically, SSD, it would drastically slow down because it can't handle like the ingest of three media sources kind of coming at it at once. Whereas with NVMe, it doesn't slow down. So I can just dump all my stuff at full speed, which is really nice. Um, yeah, I saw that and it's incredible. I'm going to build one of these. For the listeners, I mean, you just need an enclosure. And by build, you mean you're going to screw one in. Like yeah. it's, it's, not, it doesn't, it's not like uh, I have to build a rocket. No, it's no. it's quite simple. It's two it's two things. You got an enclosure, you got an NVMe. You can, build, you can buy pre-assembled ones, but... It's just cheaper to, to assemble it yourself, and it works just as well. So anyway, that's the uh, technical stuff. And you know what? In one of my one of my Instagram posts, or I guess my my only Instagram post at, at the end of Tashkent, um, I put up a picture of my camera setup, and someone commented and said, "Hey, on on the podcast, can you go over your camera setup?" And I was like, uh, "Maybe." I mean, I don't know if enough people care, but. Um, but if anyone wants to know, you know, maybe maybe leave some comments on this podcast and I'll yep. go into it in detail. If you want like a brief overview, I could give it now. But we can also do a deep dive tech podcast about our, our gear at some point. Maybe that would fit in better there. 
Yeah, exactly. Like, I, I don't know if there's, I feel like we've already spent quite a while here just talking about, you know, tech related stuff. So I don't, I mean, I we talked 40 minutes there. about suitcases yeah. on our other episode. <laughs> so That's no big deal. Yeah, we go on some rants, or at least I do. Back to, I want to bring it back to Panems because um, obviously I have not been there. Boffer has been there. So, Dr. Boffer, what has been, like, can you talk, share some experiences you had there? Maybe about pigeons, starting with those. Or So, so pigeons, well, I'll start even before pigeons. Uh, the hotel that I was at was the, like, the meat hotel. Mm-hmm. And it was like a 40-minute bus ride away from the venue, which actually turned out I was worried about this because on Google Maps, it said it could be anywhere from 40 minutes to like two hours, depending on traffic. Yeah. Luckily, it was only always 40, like 42 minutes exactly. And the buses were fine. They were air-conditioned. The biggest issue with the buses is they would often play really loud music. Uh, and so you were sort of sitting there listening to just really loud music for 42 minutes. Uh, music to the reggaeton probably yeah no it wasn't like exactly yeah it was like not i mean which is great right but at like eight in the morning it's maybe <laughs> not what you want when you're trying to like catch up on a little nap or just like talk with somebody about the day but when i got to the hotel when i checked in so like a guy takes me to my room first of all they sanitize the luggage which is interesting uh it's one of the like I get it. People want to be COVID safe, but it feels like safety, like theater, basically. Like Mm -hmm. my luggage is probably not a vector for a virus, but whatever. The guy checks me into my room and he like immediately like turns around and sort of falls to the ground. And I was like, what happened? Like, did he like, what did I offend him? Did he like buckle, you know, double over like a stomachache or something? He picks up a small crab that had been hanging out in my room. Nice. Live crab from the floor. And then, because he hadn't finished, like, showing me about the room, he held the crab in his hand while he showed me all the features <laughs> of the room. So he's got this little crab, and he's like, here's a mini bar over here. This is where the towels are. There's a TV. This is the most normal thing in the world, <laughs> just holding his little the crab. TV, the TV remote wasn't working. So he's holding the crab in one hand, trying to get the TV remote to work, right? It's not working. So he's like, I'll be right back. He leaves, comes back five minutes later. Still with the crab in his hand. No way. <laughs> with, with the remote now that has like new batteries. And he's oh. like, all right, here it is. And then he starts showing me how to use a TV while holding the crab. So that was you a got interesting a little start. Pet. little hotel pet. I did, yeah. And then I was worried, like, are there going to be crabs in my room every day? Like, is this something I need to worry about constantly? Hmm. Luckily, it was not. And actually, the hotel was like totally fine. Like the air conditioning worked really well. Nice. The biggest issue at the hotel was it was loud sometimes, but where my room was wasn't as bad. Jen from One Kilo, her room was in between basically the two like musical, because it's an all inclusive resort. So there's always like every night there's some kind of concert mm-hmm. or show or something going on. And Jen's room was literally at the corner in between where you would have like the adult crowd stuff and like the family crowd stuff. And it was <laughs> so loud. So that was the hotel. It was fine. Again, it was totally fine. How was the food? The food was like, it was like standard buffet food, right? Like nobody's going to a buffet anywhere in the world that I'm aware of and being like, this is the best food I've ever had. Like it was fine. I've been it's to some like, really good buffets. There are some good buffets, but... But they're I, not I at all inclusives in, you know, an hour from Santo Domingo. 
Exactly. Yeah. Like the food was the nice thing about the food was just that you didn't have to think. It was just like I woke up and I knew I could go and get like some breakfast in me before getting on the bus. And when we get back, because we'd be on the bus at like eight, eight thirty, and we wouldn't get back until like between eight thirty and nine thirty. And it's just there's no discussion of like where should we eat, what's going to be open, what can we get into, what do you feel like? It's just you go to the buffet and there's whatever is available there. And at that point, like. You don't even care, sort of, right? You're just like, I'm just hungry. I just want to eat and try to get to bed at a reasonable hour. Um, but it was fine. It was like totally, totally edible food. I don't think I got sick at any point. Maybe like at the very end a little bit, but I had a beach, which was nice. Like so I've, I've definitely so stayed at far worse places. Yeah. Um, the venue and Nat, you said you've been to this venue, right? I've been there twice. So the venue is inside, technically, but the walls don't meet the ceiling. Yeah, so I mean, it's, like, it's vented at the roof. Yeah, it's vented. Exactly. There's like several feet of space in between where the walls and the ceiling meet. And so it's pigeons like a pavilion. Do- it's really not a building. It's a pavilion. Yeah, exactly. Like a covered, yeah. covered pavilion. Mm-hmm. But it means pigeons fly in and, and roost in the rafters like above you all the time. And so literally the first day I'm there, I don't think I had even like taken a camera out. And I was shit on by a pigeon. <laughs> I was like, all right, that was a great start. Uh, People got I think shit, I shit on a few on. times each time I was there, but I've, I mean, I've been, I've avoided it. So I think, honestly, I think it's like almost guaranteed. They're just, for, for whatever reason, the pre- maybe they did this on purpose. Like the press pa- table was <laughs> literally right below where <laughs> pigeons like to roost. And so one morning we arrived and the press table was covered in dried pigeon shit. Because all the rafters and beams above you, obviously pigeons spend all day up there. They shit on that. And so if they like tussle or get into a fight or anything, they knock off dried shit. And so our press table was just festooned in a a (laughs) dusting of pigeon shit. And on Sarah Robles' session, during her session, same thing happened. There were some pigeons like fighting at one point above the platform and then when you look down, you could see in one corner of the platform, there was a bunch of dried pigeon crap. Not things I would expect to deal with in a weightlifting competition. But uh, overall, it was like I was worried. I was like, my camera's going to get shit on or uh, somebody lip, mid-lift is going to get pooped on. It actually, it worked out fine. And like it was warm and uncomfortable, but because it's consistently warm and uncomfortable, you kind of just like get off the bus and you're like, all right, I'm going to be uncomfortable for 12 hours. And you just deal, you know, like, that's it. This is, this is just going to be how, how I will have to deal with things. Um, I also have heard in that venue that this is the best it's ever been. Cause a friend of mine who lifted there for masters worlds a few years ago said when he was there, there were nowhere, they had toilets, which you could use, you could use all the toilets, but none of them flushed. So you just had to go around the venue and find the least used toilet That's in accurate. the venue. Yeah, there and, there was no no toilet paper, no flushing, no running water really the last time. Yeah, I there. yeah, that's what he said as well. Like Ned and I have been to some really sketchy toilet places. Um, or to- I've been really to sc- worse ones than this. Than even this one in a few years ago, which I would rate as like a top top ten worst bathroom I've been to. Mm-hmm. I've been, I've been to worse ones. 
than than this one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it, it was fine when I was there. Like they had toilet paper, which was good. They didn't have paper towels except in the athlete bathroom, and so I just kept using that one basically. Mm-hmm. And that was the only bathroom that consistently had soap as well. Yeah, uh, like sometimes the regular public bathroom sometimes had soap, sometimes didn't, and sometimes had purple liquid in a water bottle which I assumed was so like you just sort of poured it into your hand. Um, but again, this like I have been to worth worse bathroom. Certainly. I would, I would say Vladi Kavkaz was maybe the worst. I don't know. Maybe Grozny. Yeah. Yeah. One of those, those, those were, those were pretty bad. Those, I mean, the one that really comes to mind for me is, is Vladi Kavkaz. Yeah. The one where you sent me the video. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> We can't discuss that video on this podcast. <laughs> yeah, we do, we're not. But the, the lesson we've learned uh, over these years is always bring some wet wipes. Just have them in your like yeah. camera bag or the bag you bring to the venue and have that ready. Yeah, yeah, you need wet wipes, that's for sure. And also there's this rule amongst everybody that uh, wet wipes are getting shared. Like whoever needs it, gets it. Because you always could be end up in the position of needing someone yeah. else's wet wipes. I mean, I even Rome... Sorry, go ahead. I was going to say, even the bathrooms in Rome, like I would always bring in tissues or something just in case because you couldn't, like, you couldn't bank on them. Have there's hundreds of athletes and coaches and fans pre COVID at least, right? But like, you just can't bank on the staff being on top of changing that stuff all the time. Mm. No, um, the worst. Well, not not worst, but the one of the scariest situations for me was so in 2014, I went on a trip to China. Um, I ended up getting kicked off the trip, uh, which I guess some people would know that, but I ended mm-hmm. up getting kicked off the trip because they were mad at me because I was like basically complaining that the camp had said they would be at the national training center, but we were actually at like a, like a sport university, et cetera, et cetera. So I got kicked off the camp. Um, and, uh, that's a, that's a whole different thing to go into. But after that, I had about a week left in Beijing and because of how I had my flight scheduled, um, I really couldn't like leave early. I tried to call, you know, Delta to see if they would switch my flight, but there wasn't really an option for me to leave early other than literally just buying a new flight and giving up on my old one. And so I was like, you know what? I was like, I'll just stay in Beijing for a week and kind of do some tourism and do this and do that. So one of the things I did um, was I contacted uh, a local friend, she basically told me like, Hey, there's actually a, a meet going on in Beijing right now. It was like the, the, like the Beijing, like city games or something. It, it wasn't like anything, all that, all that interesting, but she was like, Hey, if you want to, you can like come to the meet one of the days and like, we can go out to, she speaks English, but she's Chinese, but she was like, we can go out to eat with one of the coaches and I can like translate. You can like ask some questions, blah, 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 this and that. I was like, all right, that sounds good. That was like a good one day activity. So I go to this meet and, you know, I just get hit with, Hey, I've got to go to the bathroom when I'm sitting there at the meet. So I just tell her, I'm like, Hey, you know, uh, where's the bathroom, whatever. She's like, Hey, go, you know, go out, go up the stairs, go around the corner, go there, what, you know, whatever. We were at some school basically. So I go to the bathroom and as people who, you know, travel in China would know, uh, these are squat toilets. So if you're in like a Western, a place where Western um, people would be, they'll usually have squat toilets and, you know, normal toilets. Um, but, you know, it wasn't really a problem for me. Like I can deal with squat toilets fine. So I, I, you know, use a squat toilet. 
everything goes fine. Um, oh, oh, by the way, I should say this was like a local school. This wasn't like, you know, some like American international school, whatever. So it, it only had squat toilets, but that part was fine. I use a squat toilet and I look around. I'm like, there is no toilet paper here whatsoever. <laughs> and, and I was in, I was in a little bit of a, um, of a, of a rush when I went in there. Like I wasn't like about to, you know, go in my pants or whatever, but like I was, I, it, it wasn't like a, a calmly enter the bathroom situation. I was like, all right, I need to. <laughs> I need to go. I need to get into a bathroom uh, pretty much now. I look around after I go to the bathroom. They're like, yeah, there's just no toilet paper here whatsoever. There was no one else in the bathroom because like it was over a weekend. So the school is just dead. There was no one there other than the people basically in the basement where the lifting was going on. So I'm up like two, two stories basically from where the, where the meat or two or three stories from where the meat's being held. And there's no one up there. No one I can like yell at to be, you know, of course they don't speak English anyway, but I couldn't get anyone's attention. I end up literally just calling her. And I, I, was just, I was like, Hey, I was like, I was like, I'm up in the bathroom. Um, oh God. There's no toilet paper here. Uh, what do I do? Um, and so anyway, uh, I, she ended up like coming upstairs and literally like tossing some tissues over the, the stall. And, and I was, you know, that took care of it. But, um, that experience is what taught me, Hey, I should start bringing like a little wet white pack with me when I'm traveling, when, you know, you just can't count on it, no, you know? Okay. And I, I know, you know, even in the U S if you go to like a, um, like some sort of public bathroom, you can't really count on it. Like yeah. it, could be, it could be there. It could not be there. But, um, but I guess I had just thought, Oh, we're in like a school, you know, we're not in like a, a random public, like open to anyone, uh, bathroom. But anyway, yeah, that, that Beijing experience is what really, um, what, what really convinced me like, okay, yeah, I need to start carrying wipes around. But yeah, yeah ever since is, then, it's not unique, I think to any one country, but it's just rare that you spend like 10, 12 hours a day in one area to, and use a bathroom, like, and, and therefore might need to use a bathroom that many times or in that many ways. So, yeah, wipes, I, um, you know, I, I mean, at, at this point, I don't go to meets for the bathrooms. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> the bathrooms are usually bad at most places. And that's just, that's just how I've just realized that's how it is. And you just have to go to and be prepared to make it as, you know, usable as possible for yourself. And, all I can say is don't go to Vladikavkaz. I mean, the hotel was great. The The restaurants were fine. You know, the, the, the people was great. great. Yeah. But uh, the venue bathroom was absolutely disgusting. <laughs> terrible. <laughs> that was really uh, bad. Yeah, really bad. Anyway. Um, yeah. Overall, Pan Am's Dr. Buffer, what do you think? Um, in terms of lifting quality, seeing people again, like how did it feel? So the... The top end of the lifting was good. The The issue with, not even an issue, but just there weren't enough people, I guess, entered to justify A and B sessions. Mm -hmm. And so you only had one session per per class. And the result was that a lot of those classes, the low end of the range uh, could be like an outlier. You know, so there'd be a few outliers, maybe really low. And then you would obviously have sort of the rest of the field later on. It made for long sessions, like a lot of, and these are, again, four a day, generally. There were a couple days with three. Most days had four, and the last day had two. How many lifters per session? Was it like 15? Usually 15 is a cutoff, right? 
It'd be like 13, pretty. It was usually like oh. 12 to 13. It sort of depended, obviously, but there mm-hmm. were a number of sessions of like 12 to 13, which makes for a long session. Um, yeah, sometimes it's tough to keep your attention attention up. Oh, yeah. Especially, again, like if you're at Pan Ams, obviously you are a better athlete than I am or any of us on this call, right? But at the same, by the same token, like somebody doing a weight that I might see at a national or local meet, even in Pan Ams, is a little hard to be excited for that at the beginning of a session when you've just shot like three other sessions that day and you're going on like protein bars, essentially. Hmm. Um, but there was good lifting. There was some really good lifting. Yeah. Team USA did pretty surprisingly. The women especially, they won uh, the team trophy overall. I think Colombian men won that trophy overall. But there was some solid, uh, solid lifting. And in general, it ran pretty smoothly, especially given the fact that there were so many athletes. Uh, like there were a few tech stops, obviously, but there's always going to be tech stops. There were a few moments where, like, I, I meant to look into this and I totally forgot to check it. I think Crystal Narlem of Canada got four attempts in the snatch. I'm not positive of this. And maybe, like, that was getting into the week where I was, like, starting to get tired. But I really think there was some out-of-order lifting that happened and she got a fourth attempt in the snatch. Um, I think we saw some. We saw one too, right, Ned? Some because of the misloading. Did, yeah, that, that actually, was we should talk funny. about this, right? Did we talk about this? Yeah. I don't think we talked about it because okay. I think it happened too late in the meet. I think we had, didn't do any podcast after oh. that happened. Okay, we're coming back to Doctor 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 Doffa after this. Uh, so yeah, just tell the story real quick of. Um, so the the girl um, the it was basically an Uzbek lifter. She's actually famous for the one who does the extremely slow pull in the clean and jerk. Yeah. Um, which I don't know if I've ever posted a video of her, but I know Gregor, you have, and you know, there's a lot of people who, you know, are aware of who she is. If you say the girl, the Uzbek girl who does a really slow pull in the clean and jerk, basically she was lifting and she was taking her opening attempt. And the thing was, was that I looked at the bar and on my side, it was it was 122 that was loaded. So basically, you know, the two big reds and then the collar and then a small green. And so the the thing that alerted me to it was I was like, I was like, I thought she was I thought I had seen on the board that she was opening at like 127. I was like, that's weird. Like, I've never seen someone just drop like five kilos in this situation. You know, obviously, I've seen people drop you know, entry or drop, you know, drop their opener or something like that. But I was like, it just seemed like a weird drop to me for her to be doing that. Like that's something like Rostami does. The the Uzbek <laughs> girls don't do that. Literally as she's doing her first pull, I'm taking the pictures and I, I'm like 22. That's weird. I thought I was 27. And I literally glance out of the right side of like my, my, my right eye. I look at the board and the board says 27. I'm like, but well, that's 22. No, I, I didn't know what was loaded on the other side because I, I wasn't really watching the loading. I normally don't watch the loading that closely. I'm usually like checking something on my camera or, you know, just kind of like making sure that everything's frame right, et cetera, et cetera. And so I see I see that she's definitely lifting 22, at least on my side, and the board says 27. And I see that like I kind of like see it during the first pull and like kind of like when she's standing up from the clean is when I'm like, we have a problem. Because, you know, when you first see it, you're like, that's not right. 
but then you're not like, you know, it, it kind of takes you, you like a second to process it. Hmm. And so as she's standing up from that, I'm thinking like, I'm like, I've got to like run up and say something, but like, I didn't want to run up and say something during the lift, you know? Cause I was like, I'm going to continue getting like the video and photos that I'm going to get whatever, whatever. I'm like, like maybe one of the refs will notice I won't have to run up and say something because I'm always reluctant to like run up and say anything in any meet. It's a very rare for me to have done what I did, but um, no one said anything. So, you know, she, she made the lift. She's walking off the platform. And yeah, I'm she like, didn't even like protested. She didn't notice. Yeah. Um, you know, no. And the thing too is, is that the, the misloaded side was, was facing the coaches. So the coaches could have seen it. Mm-hmm. No one seemed to notice none of the refs, none of the jury, none of the people sitting at the table, none of the coaches, except no one noticed apparently except me. So I walk up to the, to, I put my camera down quickly and I, I kind of like run up to the table where like the IWF people are basically the closest table to the meet. And I just said something to them where I was like, I was like, that bar was misloaded. And they're like, what? And like, literally they, they hit pause on the meet. So at this point I have like stopped an A session at like a major international meet. That's like, you know, being like televised and this and that. Okay. There's a, there's a tech stop in place because Ned put his finger down. Yeah. <laughs> there's a tech stop because the photographer ran up to the table and said that bar was misloaded. Yeah. And here, here's what was kind of terrifying to me. They replayed the lift and they replayed it from the angle of Gregor's side, which was the other side of the platform, which did have the, the two and a half kilo weight on there. So it was loaded, right? Mm-hmm. And they replayed the lift and they looked at it and they're like, they're like, that bar was loaded, right? And I literally thought to myself, and because by this point, they had taken the weight off the bar and they were like loading stuff up for the next lift. And I looked at the I was like, I was like, am I crazy? Hmm. Or I, I, was, I was like, I'm sure that weight was loaded wrong on my side. I was like, the, the two and a half wasn't there. And and they're like, no, 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 the weight was loaded, right? Look, and I'm looking at the video and yeah, on Gregor's side, it was loaded, right? But then in the background, I could see the two and a half kilo weight on the on the weight rack on on my side. So I point at it and I'm like, I'm like, why is the two and a half kilo weight on the weight rack? And that's then then they were just like, oh, shit. Yeah, yeah. no, that was that was loaded wrong. That was actually not 127. That was 124 and a half. So um, so I was at I, for for like a split second when they all looked at me, like literally three people looked at me and they're like, that weight was loaded, right? And I like my heart started beating because I'm like, I'm like, did I just run up and stop the meet <laughs> like an idiot and like mess this up? And like, I literally looked at, um, at Azamat, the, the, like the son of the, basically the, you know, the Uzbek essentially acting president and Azamat speaks English. And I literally looked at Azamat when they all said that to me, I'm like, Azamat, am I crazy? And he just looked at me with kind of like, kind of like a shrug, like he didn't know what to say. And then I noticed the two and a half kilo plate on the opposite side. Now, I, I, I guess eventually they could have replayed it from the opposite camera, like kind of like, because they have three cameras there. Hmm. Um, but for whatever reason, they played it from that side, um, from Gregor's side. And so anyway, I was very relieved when I was like, oh, God, like, yeah, I, I didn't I didn't just stop a meet for no reason. So they ended so, up giving her another attempt and right. she made it, et cetera, et cetera. But yeah, that's terrifying to run up and make and to then to say that because, you know, for all I know, I'm like, I'm tired and I just like, didn't see something that I, whatever, you know, but I was like, I was very sure that mm-hmm. I was like, this is, 
this is this is one twenty two. This isn't one twenty seven. At least on from my perspective. Anyway, Swiss is none of the uh, judges saw it. No, no one, no, no one noticed it. No and, one and Zoli, the guy from the IWF, who he was the one who hit tech stop or whatever. And when I ran up there, because hmm. um, you know the the jury and the the IWF people have a button that can like pull up the thing that says tech stop on the the plat the scoreboard and basically stops the meet. Um, and uh, at least I think he hit it. You know what I mean? Like I, I at the time I was more focused on like, am I right or not? That it's possible that someone from the jury hit it, or you know, I don't know. I didn't like see clearly exactly who hit the button. But um, but Zoli came up to me afterwards, and I was like, I was like, Zoli, was I the was I the only one who noticed that? And he literally said something to me where he was just like. He's like, I think so, but you know what? There's only eight of them, so how could they notice? Like he was, he was making some sort of like comment about how like the the, the officials weren't paying attention. He's like, oh, there's only eight, you know? How could you expect them to? Once again, I out? saw some officials fall asleep during session. This competition, yeah. yeah. I kid you not, like nodding off. Yeah, the the officials, you know, they they range in quality. Like I I've seen some who are like really good, really on top of it, like extremely um attentive and i've seen some officials at some meets just be literally they couldn't possibly care less they're not even watching the meet and they're just you know judging it you know hmm. um so back to panams i guess uh so you saw a force attempt as well what was the reason I for this th- one i'm pretty sure so again i need to i don't have the footage here otherwise i'd look at it but i think what happened is The weight was at 89 for an athlete. Uh, Crystal Narlin was supposed to open at 90. So it went 89, 90. But I think another athlete made a change to open at 89. And so Narlin came out, took 90, missed it. And there was like some sort of like the competition sort of slowed down and stopped. And then I see them taking off because on the women's bar, 90 is a red, a green, and then color. I see them taking off the greens I'm like, what? Like, I know we're not jumping up to 100 next. And they reload 89. And the athlete who wanted to open with 89 came out. Or I forget if it was her second attempt or what it was. But she came out, took 89. And then a couple of attempts later, Crystal came out and took 90 for her opener and made it. Mm-hmm. And at one point, I looked over to the jury. They had a three-person jury, if I'm not mistaken, I looked over to them and they seemed confused for a second, but also like nothing, they did, nothing happened. Like the competition, it was just like, all right, took a 90, we're going to go back to 89. The competition just proceeded that way with no, maybe among themselves, there was some acknowledgement of what happened, but. Yeah, they were like, if you didn't see it, I didn't see it. Like, we just, <laughs> let's just keep quiet. Seriously. <laughs> I mean, like publicly, There was no announcement of this Mm -hmm. again, unless I'm totally crazy and like either misremembering or, or just like saw the wrong thing or something, but I swear that this happened, but in general, the competition ran fine. I think it was totally fine. Uh, There were some good lifts. We saw at the end of the competition, rice took cracks at two Oh two. I think it was and two forty two, and missed them. But There were like valid record attempts. There were a lot of other Pan Am records, at least. Uh, CJ with a 155 snatch that was both an American and a Pan Am record and was broken like a minute later, but that was a pretty impressive lift. Maddie, Bodie doing uh, 182 was pretty impressive in the snatch. 
81, 81, yeah. 81, excuse me, 81. And then he trying 87. He tried. He, listen, any one of us had as much of a shot at that 187 as Bodie did that day. Wow. His 181 was impressive, super impressive. And yeah. I didn't, when he asked for 187, I was like, who knows? Maybe like Bodie has made some pretty impressive strides in some years, right? I like mean, 181 is already such a huge lift. That's huge. Here's the thing. That's huge. I mean, you know, in North America or in the Americas, I mean, how many people who aren't supers are doing one eight more than one eighty? None. That's that's not a big list. <laughs> uh, so I thought maybe, maybe, and then yeah, I mean, if you watch his attempt, wasn't happening. Um, but yeah, there were Jordan's one eleven clean and jerk. I mean, both her snatch and her clean and jerk were really impressive. Mm-hmm. So. There were there was a lot of solid lifting up the top, especially like in the context of Pan Am. And actually, Jordan's what Jordan's two hundred total, I think, is the heaviest non Asian total by a forty eight or a forty nine ever. Non Asian total, huh? Interesting. Nice. I would have impressive. to. I'd have to think about it. But that's... what about like Turkey? The Turkey forty nines. I mean, yeah, I was I was gonna say like Turkey definitely had some, but I mean, non popped forty nines probably. <laughs> if you're talking about someone who's never tested positive, I think the answer is absolutely it probably has to be. Yeah. Yeah. But if you're talking about people who tested positive from quote, you know, European Federation, I do think I think there have been higher. But anyway, it's it's definitely impressive. So it was good. It was a solid meet. Mm-hmm. There is better lifting, I think, than I expected. Clearly, some people are in solid shape going into the Olympics. Um, yeah. And otherwise, I don't know. It was interesting. Maddie to, to looked really good, too. Champs. We should mention that. I mean, I don't know if yeah. you mentioned it. I thought Maddie looked 111, really, 140. Maddie looked the best she's ever, I've ever seen her. Matt, like, whether, and in person, just in videos, whatever you want to say, Maddie looked by far better than I've Like, clearly... The added body weight and switching coaches, switching training has had an effect. Her snatches look better. Her clean and jerk looks better. I know people on the internet were sort of going nuts over maybe a soft elbow on the last clean and jerk, but it was fine. I've seen, like, we have all seen much worse gets passed. And on that day, the judges said it was good. So that's a good lift. Uh, but Stamo too, Jesse Stamo with a 108 snap. I mean, moments before Maddie came out for her Pan Am record snaps, Jesse Stamo came out and did a Pan Am record snatch. So yeah, that's a cool session. Yeah, it was. A, that was a really good session. There were a lot of good sessions. Uh, Kate came. You know, the session before Kate is a 76 came out did like 105, one. I don't even remember 130. I want to say yeah, 130. Which is off her best, obviously, but she's coming off some injuries and has just switched coaches. She's gone over to Spencer. So, like, I think that's a totally reasonable place to be, especially because the 105 and the 130 were second attempt lifts, although she took three attempts or took it took her third attempt to make that 105. But, like, that's a good place to be, I think, leading into the Olympics. I feel um, like she's just been affected by by injuries. You know what I mean? Like, I just think that I think she's not in the same condition she was in in like 2019 because of the injuries. I don't think it's anything yeah. like, oh, she just decided, hey, I don't feel like training anymore, sort of bad condition. And they're, you know, saying that 105, 130 is bad condition is not accurate. It's just bad condition for her. You know what I yeah. mean? Um, yeah. Or just not, not peak condition for her. But I think that 
you know, she still has enough time if the injuries don't continue to affect her to, to kind of get those numbers up uh, a good amount for, for Tokyo. Yeah, I would agree. I mean, I think there's no reason why we couldn't see her do like a 110, 135-ish or more uh, by Tokyo. I, I mean, say, once you've I'd say more done those if, weights, yeah, more, you more, think even? More if she's, if she's, to me, it all comes down to like health. You know what I mean? Because yeah. I saw, I think it was on her stories like yesterday where it looked like she was in like a bit of pain from pulling. And what I would say is that like, if she's, you know, still experiencing pain in like, you know, May and June and stuff like that. I mean, then the hopes of her having a good meet where, you know, she could medal or potentially even, you know, win. I, I know that winning sounds crazy, but if Zhang Wang Li is not there and, um, and, and Kate is in like excellent, you know, above her best shape, then, I mean, she's, you know, there's really no one who you'd be like, oh, well, she's automatic to win. I mean, yeah, AC is the closest thing to being like, hey, probably a favorite uh, if Zhang Wang Li is not there. And obviously, I'm assuming Rim Zhang Sim's not going, you know, yeah. so. Um, but I mean, I would at this point, I would I would, you know, if I had to bet, I would put money on on Nacy or um, even like a Remy Fuentes can is, is capable of winning. Um I don't know about Lydia. I'm not sure exactly, you know, what sort of shape Lydia is in, but if Lydia gets into the sort of shape that she's been in in the past, obviously she's a, a big threat to win also, but it should be interesting. But yeah, Kate, I just, I hope that she can, um, you know, like work around the injuries at a minimum, if not, you know, kind of be recovered from them. And because that, that would be disappointing for her if she kind of had such a good 2019 and then, you know, kind of didn't didn't really have a great Olympics because of injuries. I would feel bad about that, but mm-hmm. I hope that's not the case. Yeah. I mean, I think she is an athlete who is capable of like a 115, 140, 145 series of lifts as she currently stands, right? Like, I don't see why yeah. thinking long-term she can't do more, right? Like, I, I could see her being like a 120, 150 athlete, to be honest. And I... I know she's done. I think she said one thirteen from the floor is her best snatch. No, I, uh, would, I, mean, I, I was going to say I would say you know if she is not affected by injuries in the in the period between now and Tokyo, I mean I I think she can do one fifteen one forty. I would be kind of surprised if it goes above that. But I hope I think it'd be awesome. Here. I mean I she's one of my favorite lifters to watch. I think that'd be fantastic and. I mean, she's young enough. She's had similar weights overhead, so I, I do think like the body remembers, and it yeah. If you're doing a few weeks of the right training, there's no reason she can't be back in that kind of shape. Like you say, assuming she's not injured, stays healthy, all sorts. Of, I mean, a lot has to go right, obviously. I also spoke to the, um, you know the the. Basically, you know, the, the guy from Lu Jun Barbell and uh, squat jerk journalists and stuff like that about what they think is going to happen with like the Chinese women, because, you know, that's one of the big factors is, you know, we did talk about this on the prior podcast, which is that basically, I think we all assume that uh, Deng Wei and Li Wenwen are uh, virtual locks for the Olympics. And then then it's just, you know, of the remaining five classes, they have four 
what I would consider to be guaranteed golds. Um, some people, you know, from like India might take arguments with that, with like, you know, Mirabai, hmm. you know, so on and so forth. And, you know, maybe like Nacy would take, you know, an exception to that and or something thinking that, you know, she could win. But in my opinion, five heavy favorites for, uh, you know, gold medal or four heavy favorites for gold medals. And they can only choose two. So we did talk about that. So I'm not going to go over the whole thing. But basically, the Chinese seem to be telling me that they think it's more likely that they would send a 49 and an 87. And they think that 55 and 76 will not get a Chinese entry. So um, that's very good news for Heidi, because that means that it might be like Heidi and like Nabieva or something like that. Yeah. Like battling for gold in the 55s. And bad I feel like Heidi Jordan. can win. And it's bad news for Jordan. Um, and it is uh, potentially, you know, bad news for Maddie and good news for Kate. I mean, it obviously, you know, squad jerk journalist is not the president of the Chinese Federation and he doesn't know, you know, what people are going to do. And, I also should mention he wasn't representing it to me as like, oh, no, 100%. This is what's happening. He basically said that he thinks that that's what they'll do. Um, and Wang Zhuyu had a good meet. I mean, you know, she did 160. Yeah. Uh, I mean, the thing is, is like, how good of a meet does Wang Zhuyu really have to have to prove she's going to win? You know what I mean? Like, like Wang Zhu, like they, they could send like Kang, Kang Yue, who, you know, isn't, isn't as strong as Wang Zhuyu and she would still win, you know? So, yeah. Um, like there's just, you know, like Wang Zhuyu is going to like basically, you know, easily win assuming she gets sent. So it's just, it's tough to, it's tough to figure out. I mean, you know, it is, does Heidi have a chance against Liao in the 55s if they send Liao? I mean, yes, but also no, if Liao is in good shape, you know? So, Anyway, it's uh, it's interesting, but I I think that Kate it has stands a good chance of uh, not having to deal with Zhang Wang Li. So it's it's not necessarily that that means Kate would win gold, but it does open up a uh, you know extra medal spot. And I mean, in my opinion, you know, if Kate's in in good shape, like she's a pretty big favorite to end up with a medal, yeah. um, based on the listing that I saw. Um, you know, what we should also talk about Gregor is like my conversation with the Iranians. Um, but anyway, do you, uh, do you guys have anything else to say before I start talking about that? I have some other topics laid out for later, but yeah, just do the, yeah, let's go into the Iranians. Yeah. And by the way, I'm looking at the 76 kind of listing on the, you know, I'm trying to maybe be a little bit more, um, uh, I'm looking at the points, you know, I mean. I'm trying to be like a little bit more informed about, you know, the actual Olympic standings. Cause like we, like we mentioned on the prior podcast, like I really just don't follow it that closely because I feel like it's. You, you broke this one rule we had for the podcast. Sorry. what did you say? You broke this one rule we had for the podcast, which is don't do research. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, so anyway, I, yeah, I'm just looking at this, uh, this, this list. And if you, you know, if you sort by best total in the 76s, um, it's basically people who, like, aren't really going to be competing. I feel like maybe Lady is a really good, um, you know, candidate possibly for a medal there. Um, 
you know, and then it's some people that I'm not really sure how many spaces, how many spots they'll have. Like, you know, there's like the good Ukrainian girl, uh, Irina Deka. Mm-hmm. And, um, but it's like, I think maybe Ukraine might, might be pretty spot looted. And, you know, are they going to send Deka or are they going to send the girl from the 55s, like Kanotop or whatever her name is? Mm-hmm. You know, so it's kind of like until I actually see who's actually lifting in the Olympics, it's tough for me to really make great like metal guesses. You know what I mean? But um, if you go over to the men, there's an interesting situation going on right now, which is basically that um, what's his face? Uh, Marathi is not really very high up on the standings, um, which is actually crazy to think about because he, I mean, he has the world record and the highest total in the qualification period. Mm-hmm. But um, the trouble for him is that he doesn't really have that many points. He He's not going to be, as far as I can tell, he's not going to be top top eight. Um, and so the, the issue that the... Um, that the Iranians have is I think they're trying to hope that he can become the basically highest placed Asian or something like that. I think, I think that was like what they're hoping for. Um, and then, then hopefully get Marathi into the Olympics. But as of, as of right now, I think it's kind of like questionable whether he'll even be in the Olympics, hmm. you know, just whether he'll even qualify. That's insane. Which and like you, like I said, considering how he started off in Ashgabat, I mean, that's crazy to think about because he started off with a, uh, I don't even know exactly how many points it was because it doesn't really, let me see if it lays it out here. Okay, here we go. So yeah, he started off with a uh, uh, 1,242 uh, Roby points performance. Um, and then... Uh, you know, really hasn't had like a really big performance since, you know, he'll get a good number of Roby points from the Asian championships, which aren't, um, you know, on the system yet, but I think it's not, uh, the Iranians seem to be talking to me as if it was not going to be enough points to put him in to the top eight, which from, from what I'm seeing here, they're right about, because he just had such a low point total from, uh, Switzerland. And anyway, so yeah, we'll see, um, We'll see if he even gets into the if he even gets into the Olympics. But anyway, they, they were they were asking me basically whether they could choose. I think what they're worried about is they're worried that maybe if somehow Rostami's points from Switzerland are given to him, which they currently are not, and yeah, they're they're currently not. Even though he did compete and he li- you know lifted a total and you know, physically put weight over his head in Switzerland because of some like technicalities with like when he registered and blah, blah, blah. He wasn't officially granted those points. So right now there's a bit of a dispute going on in the IWF where like the, you know, Rostami is asking for those points to be given to him and blah, 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 blah. I think what's going on is that if Rostami gets those points, he would potentially I think possibly be in the top in the top eight. Once again, I don't know because I haven't I haven't run all these numbers, but that's what the Iranians were kind of like hinting at when they were asking me this. 
So a few of the Iranian coaches and officials came over to me after the, the meet was over and they said, hey, we have a question. If we have an athlete in the top eight and we have an athlete who's number one in Asia, can we choose which one we want to send? First of all, um, I think it's funny that you are the authority for the Iranians to ask when it comes to who they're going to send to the Olympics. Continue. Yeah. Why, why are they asking me? Like they, they don't ask, they don't just ask someone, I guess, you know, that, that shows like they don't feel like there's anyone, I guess they can reach out to at the IWF, but they literally came up and said like, Hey, can we do that? And I think what they were hinting at was that Rostami, if he got those points from Switzerland would be top eight. And then they're saying that, I guess they're hoping that Maradi could be top from Asia. And they're, I think they're hoping to send Maradi because they think Maradi has a better chance than Rosami. Um, you know, whether they're right about that or not, I don't really know. Like, I'm not trying to, you know, judge who's in better shape or who will be in better shape or whatever. But, and also Rosami was telling me that he thinks that the Iranians are trying to stop him. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, because he thinks that the Iranians don't want him to get a third Olympic medal. You know, it was anyway, also I'm noticeable that he was um, always not part of the team here. I mean, he he was training on his own in Tashkent. Yeah, he's always been like very much on his own for a long yeah. time now. Yeah, but Shaq, anyway, he, he's a great lifter. Would be would be insane to deny him his third Olympic gold if he's in shape to get that. But yeah, I mean, he um he had like kind of a non non. In some ways, very Rostami-like. In some ways, not that Rostami-like performance. Like, I mean, first of all, he made a total. And we should mention, um, we, we talked to him before that. And I think you asked him, like, hey, Rostami, uh, Kianush, what do you think? <laughs> I was like, here? hey, Rostami. <laughs> <laughs> Which would be fine. Like, we, yeah. we can talk to him like that. Um, I mean, I called him Stalin, you know. <laughs> you called him Stalin on Instagram. I've called him worse things than Rostami, you know? Yeah. Anyway, um, you asked him, what do you think you have to do here? He was like, man, big weights, world records, both lifts. <laughs> like, wow. Yeah. He didn't give any speeches this time. I was ready for them. Yeah. He had the camera rolling. Yeah. But he, um, you know, he had had somewhat like a, a classic Rostami performance, which is basically go two for six and win, which is something that he, you know, it's probably the best out of anyone. Like, I, I don't know if I've seen more two for six and win performances by anyone other than Rostami, but he doesn't look like he's in shape to win the 96s. But the thing is, is like no one in the 96s looked that great. I mean, yeah. Miso almost bombed out in the snatch. Of course he was lifting as a one two, but he was a very light one two. Miso almost bombed down the snatch. Didn't have a great clean jerk. Now, I know he's injured. So, you know, he's he's not badly injured, but he's been dealing with some, like, knee problems. Um, then we have Tian, uh, Tian Tao, who's also Tian, injured. Tian Tao's like, also problems. injured. Sora Marathi's also injured. Yeah. It's like no one, like, it seems like no one is in, like, really prime 96 kilo shape. I mean, obviously, like, okay, yeah, Bodhi had a great snatch, but... Bodhi's clean and jerk just isn't strong enough to be like, hey, I'm going to win the Olympics. I mean, unless all of a sudden he's, you know, going to be doing like 225 or something, then we'll be talking. But I don't think that's likely in the time period we have. So, yeah, like no one's no one's looking like that strong, like overall. No one's looking like, hey, I can put up like a, you know, like a 410 total or something like that in the 96s. So 
either people are going to get in better shape in the next couple of months, or we'll probably have a lower you know, gold medal total for the 96s. So what else do we have to go over? Um, let's see. We'll go over we- the airport leaving uh, Tashkent. Are we, we, will, we will definitely do that, but right we'll now, um, I want to go into the one of the best sessions we've seen, the 109 session. That was, was incredible. A, it was an incredible session. Yeah, we saw, first we saw like a good back and forth uh, with the Uzbeks. Then Yang Zhe lifts a world record, 200 kilo snatch. First 200 kilo snatch by a non-super since, since Aram now. Yeah, since Aram now at the Beijing Olympics in 2008. And then, yeah, incredible clean jerk finish, which was just a fantastic session to watch. But the best session at Asian Championships. Yeah, I mean, that that felt like I was watching something. Um, now, I'm not I'm not trying to hold up the, uh, I mean, there, there's, there's no good way to say this other than like the highly doped uh, eras that we've seen over the, you know, the last 10 years. It almost felt like I was watching one of those sessions where like everything felt like just like really like, you know, you just felt like the lifters could just kind of like make whatever they wanted. Like, like when Ilya took that attempt at 242 in like Almaty, it almost, it almost felt like that, you know, when he came out for the 241 and, you know, you don't see as many of those sessions now. Um, now of course, you know, you have like just Lasha just shitting on everyone, um, stuff like that, but he took it like big dumb today. Dude, Lasha's like a big dump on Instagram today. Yeah, like <laughs> I just woke up and I saw a message from you that said Lasha two two twenty five two seventy. I was like, what the fuck? <laughs> and by the way, I asked Doctor George when it was, and he said it was before Moscow. Mm. By the way, I am I'm so annoyed with the Georgian uh, uh, media cam. management system they have. Because oh. <laughs> I wrote to him and I was like, I have a question. Can you send me like the full video? Just like put it on like. Like something that hasn't been sent through WhatsApp three times. Like something, you know, like just just find the original phone it was shot on and put it on like Google Drive or some some sort of system. And he's like, he's like, oh, uh, the phone I shot it on is is broken. And I'm just like, dude, this this happened like like maybe in March. I don't I don't know. I didn't get an exact date from him when it happened, but he told me it happened before Moscow. Now he could be misoing me on the before Moscow thing. Like this might be. This might be last year. I have no idea, but I'm just like, dude, how do you, how do you like, how do you always break the phone? Like he, Dr. George has told me he's broken his phone like 15 times now. Uh-huh. Like no one, no one from Georgia is capable of just like taking a good video and like saving the full thing. You know, it's yeah. gotta be some like Android Bobo thing. And then they send it through WhatsApp eight times and then, and then they publish it. It's like the yeah. Georgian filter for video. <laughs> I mean, yeah. at this point, how do they not have just an amazing or at least a solid camera on his platform at all times? Especially if you know he's going like 225 is a, like a generational landmark in snatching. Yeah. And at this point, like you said, we have like a StarTac quality video that that shifts around mid lift, essentially. I am glad, though, that they loaded it the way they did. Like, I'm glad it's not like, you know. Like, you know, a couple reds, you know, some greens, mm-hmm. some yellows, yeah. and like was, yeah, you know, a couple some change plates. Like they, you know, they, they put on the four reds, like thankfully. Because yeah. you know, the way the Chinese would have loaded it would have would have just been like, you know, greens. <laughs> yellows. <laughs> yeah. Green, greens and yellows to the collar. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh but anyway, you know, it is cool to see, but I do wish that they would 
just like step up their media management a little bit. But like, it's just, it's frustrating. But anyway. It is a back to the 109 session, which was incredible. Um, so we had a good back and forth between Ruslan Nuridinov and Akbar Jurayev, both good friends, as we found out, because um, yeah. we talked to them after the competition, after the closing ceremony. We went to... Yeah, we were like in... Was it Jurayev's hotel room we were in? I think it was Ruslan's. Oh, no, maybe it was Jurayev's, yeah. Jurayev's hotel room. So it was just like the four of us hanging out in there talking for a few minutes. Um, it was pretty like, interesting, they, they too. They seem like they're good friends. Yeah, it was pretty interesting, too. And the reason we went to the hotel room was because Ned got the attempt card signed, the world record attempt card from Ruslan, yeah. which is, again, a cool piece of memorabilia. That I'm looking liked. at it right now. That's cool. I got my go card framed. But yeah, the reason I bring it up is because um, in the beginning, uh, before the session, Miso, the whole Qatar crew, uh, set up a bet. I mean, we didn't really bet on anything. But we just like, hey, who do you have for the session? And only Miso and I chose Akbar. And you went with um, Ruslan. Everybody else went with Ruslan too. And after the snatches, like Miso and I, we were pretty much high-fiving. And we were like, pretty sure we're going to win this. But then Ruslan came back with a lift that he had to make and 241 world record. And afterwards in your hotel room, he said, uh, you asked him like, hey, what were you ready for? Like, what was the maximum you could have done that day? And he was said straight away, like 243. I was ready for 243. Um, so once again, big clean jerks win the competition here. It's weird to know like that precisely. Yeah. How many people do on a given day? Because I, I, was, I was like, what if it was like, you know, like, what if I, I basically said something like, what if, like, Yangzhe had, like, actually clean and jerked well? Like, could you have done, like, 245, 246? And he was like, he's like, I don't think so. No, he was pretty convinced. I mean, he, straight away, he said, like, 243. Yeah, here's a good idea what he can do. You know, I, I think what I said with Neurodinov is pretty much what happened, which is I, I basically said, like, Jiraev looks stronger. But I was like, Neurodinov will take what he needs, and I think he'll make it. That was basically what I said before. And that's pretty much what happened. It's what happened, yeah. To be honest, Jiraev looked stronger, even on the lifts that even on the lifts that he missed. Like he had a close attempt at a 197 snatch. Yeah, he stood up then, with it, right? Lost it while standing up. Yeah, and like his his like 234 clean and direct looked really strong. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, Jiraev physically looked stronger and like I don't know if better is the right word, but he just looks like he's stronger. He's the future. For I, sure. Yeah. But I was just like, I just think Nurudinov is going to take what he needs and he's going to win. And, you know, you also, you know, part of my like calculus when I was saying, I thought Nurudinov would win is also just the whole, like, Hey, Nurudinov's like the home, you know, he's like, he's like the Olympic champion. This is potentially his last meet. Um, he hasn't said that, but I, you know, I have some suspicions it could be his last meet because of like he's not qualified for the Olympics. Jariev is. I think Jariev is going to go. I think Jariev very well could win. You know, and it's like it, it might be kind of like, hey, it's like Nurudinov's like last real big meet. Um, now I hope it's not. I hope he keeps competing and stuff like that. But it could be. And so I was just like, you know what? Like you can't discount like the coaches and the federation influence on this and wanting to give Nurudinov like a like a good like send off, you know, like winning mm. at home. Now, of course, that would be different if like he was lifting against, uh, you know, Simone or something like that. 
because then then they don't have as much control. But when it's basically like two, I, we we all, or at least I knew it would be the two Uzbeks going back and forth for the win. Um, you know, they have more control over like who they not like give it to, but like you know, kind of like you know, give the opportunity to. I guess I would say. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I did, I thought it was just such a classic session from the point of view that like Nurudinov needed exactly 241 to win and 241 was the world record you know what i mean so if he had taken 240 it he wouldn't have won and he wouldn't have set the world record so it's kind of like the 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 number 241 just happened to be the win and the world record which i thought was really kind of like a cool uh situation because you know if the world record was 242 and 241 was the win i'm pretty sure he would have just taken 241 to get the win but then it's like, oh, that sucks. Like if he had just done one more kilo, it would have been the world record and the win. Um, but in this case, like it just lined up perfectly that the world record and the win was the same number. Yeah, it was cool. It was really cool to see. And also, I think, uh, yeah, uh, I remember you asking him, hey, do you notice things on the platform? Like, and he was like, nope. Because we always see like athletes being called back when there's a tech stop or like a mix up in, in lifting order and athletes just won't notice it. and. Well, what, the, the way that conversation came up was because I was talking to um, I was talking to him when he was doing his last, it wasn't heavy training, but it was last like kind of like medium training. A few days out, both him and um, Jariah did 172.10. And we put up some videos of the, the 210s. I think both of us missed the 170 because the Chinese were lifting. But the... Um, you know, after, after, you know, he made the 210, I was talking to him and I was just saying like, you know, how do you feel? How's everything? Cause he had told me his last like heavy training. Now this was in between the, like the, the video he put up of the 240 from a while, uh, not a while back, but several weeks before the meet. Uh, he told me basically right around when we got to Tashkent, he said was his last like heavy training. And he never told me what he did. Um, I might ask him at some point just to like find out, but um, he just said he felt kind of like shitty that day. And so then I was asking him after the 210, I was just like, Hey, you know, I know you said you were feeling kind of shitty after the other heavy training, but how do you feel now? He's like, he's like, I feel pretty good. He's like, you know, I'm kind of like, he's like, I'm still like feeling out some of my start positions and, you know, I'm, you know, I'm having this issue, that issue, not like issue, but kind of like, you know, I'm just kind of like fine tuning this and that. And I was like, well, I was like, you know, just you know, just be, you'll, you'll be fine. Just, you know, make sure you, you know, use your tongue and do all that. And, uh, and he, he looked at me, he's like, tongue, what are you talking about? I'm like, your tongue, you know, the thing that you do before the lift where you stick your tongue way out. And, uh, and he was just like, he was like, Oh, he's like, yeah, yeah. He's like, I, he's like, I don't even realize that I do that. And I was like, all right, well, I was like, you know, just, you know, you don't have to think about it cause you just do it, but, but more tongue and you're going to win. Good luck. You know, just kind of like a joking, you know, playful conversation when it came up at the, you know, where it came up in the hotel room after he had won, this was the day after he won. Um, I was like, you know, if you look at, I, I showed him the video and I was just like, Hey, look at this. There was a lot of tongue. That's why you made the lift. And he was like, yeah, more tongue. Um, and anyway, but then he mentioned something where he's like, he's like, you know, he's like, if I'm not lifting, he's like, I can't stick my tongue out that far. And, uh, and I just thought that was funny. I, I was like, so, I was like, yeah, so he showed it to us. Like, yeah, he showed it. He, he like, he couldn't stick it out that far. And I was just like, so I was like, you just don't, you don't have any idea what you're doing when you're lifting. And he's like, no, not at all. He's like, <laughs> he's like, it's just a blur. 
like he doesn't he doesn't remember really even being on the platform barely you yeah. know which i think is very interesting and as you mentioned uh, that is true for a lot of athletes yeah i mean baffa you're you're the most experienced weightlifter of the three of us like when when you compete is it like do you almost like not remember the lift afterwards like of course you remember being there but you're not you're not like very conscious of exactly what you're doing at every moment when you're out there right Uh, no, I was a terrible athlete, so I was never able to like block all that stuff out. Like, there are a few lifts You're I've fully done. Fully aware. <laughs> yeah, like <laughs> there are a few lifts I've done where afterward I was like, "Wow, I don't even like." I could, I, I would have a glimpse of what that must be like for somebody like Nurdinov or or any top athlete, where it's like, I just sort of went on autopilot. I don't know what happened. I just like I do the lift and then that's it. But most of the time, I was like hyper aware of like. Is my grip right? Is my position right? Where are my feet? Is this platform a little weird where I'm at? Like, I think good athletes, they're just able to block all that out. And yeah, when I'm watching weightlifting and something like, uh, you know, something is distracting, like I'm distracted. I'm like, oh man, they're going to be all thrown off. But good athletes just tune that out and can come and perform. And it's like, if you've ever done anything where you have to focus and perform, you can appreciate just how impressive it is and how how rare a skill it is for for people because it's exceedingly difficult and impressive. I don't have that. I never had that. Well, yeah. I mean, Nurdinov just has, you know, he basically said that he like doesn't even know what he's <laughs> yeah. doing out there almost. Like he just he just kind of like walks out and lifts it. He's not sitting there thinking like Hey, you know, ignore this, ignore that. Don't, you know, don't do this. Don't do that. Like, I guess he just gets into the zone or whatever. Yeah. I think at that point you just like, if, I mean, he's done like how many reps in his life, literally tens of thousands. And so he can just sort of walk up, take a lift, go on autopilot and then, and then yeah, get yeah. off the platform. I think it's really, it's really impressive. I mean, people will sit like, yeah, I would watch, Uh, at the Pan Ams, people would walk in front of the platform back and forth during lifts. And that venue is not super large. Like, it's not a big enough venue that you sort of are unaware if you're on the platform of how close somebody is or of somebody in front of you. But anytime it happened, and it happened a fair amount, the athletes just don't notice. They're just not aware of what's going on. The good ones, at least. Yeah, that's true. I notice a lot of people who You know, if the bar, if there's something wrong with the bar, if there's a tech stop and everyone's yelling stop at them, a lot of them just don't, they, they don't even, they, they don't even know idea. A lot of them, it takes, a lot of them, it takes their coach yelling yeah. stop for them to stop. You know, if, you know, every ref and person in the venue could be yelling stop, they don't hear anything and their coach yells stop and then they turn yeah. around. It's interesting how they can block out that. It happened a few times at Pan Am's where literally like, the people on the side are almost out of their chairs <laughs> and like, you know, it's both mic'd and yeah. unmiked voices. So like the actual announcer of the venue saying in English and or Spanish stop. And it's like, they're people just, waving. Yeah. People, I mean, it literally everything you can do short of running on the platform and like tackle, you know, blindsiding them. And they're just totally unaware of it. All right. So is there anything else to get to before we talk about the Tashkent airport? <laughs> well, let's talk about Tashkent airport. And then we are closing this podcast off here. We had one hour, 50 so, minutes right now. <laughs> do you want to talk about Tashkent airport since you had more of an experience than I did, even though I had, you know, an experience too waiting for you. 
Oh yeah. So um, first of all, Tashkent Airport. You arrive at the airport. You do your first security screening, um, which is not really a security screening. It's more theater as well. Um, so you make it inside. Well, uh, hold on. we should we should mention the first security screening is before you even go into the building. It's almost like to get near the building, you go through a security theater process. Yeah, which is not. And really then to scam. go into the building, you do another security theater process. Exactly. So you two theaters and you're in the building you're and in the building where you can like you know check in for your flight you're, you're still not through security there's many more securities but you just entered the terminal basically you've done two okay two. yes so that's when you check in hopefully hopefully everything works out and they accept your pcr test and your like all the paperwork you need to get uh you need to show them then it's time for your third security screening the one you do before you go to the security screening, I think. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's literally yeah, right there, before there was, it, right? There was another like security 20 screening. 20 meters before the actual security no, screening. No, you do a security screening before immigration. Oh, sorry. Yeah, immigration. Exit okay. immigration. Yeah. I'm, so, I'm sorry. I messed that one up. But Anyways, once again, this, this is still not real security. Um, and by the way, the reason I don't consider it real security is they don't really make you take anything out. It's one of these things where like, you put your bag through a scanner like and you you walk through a metal detector it's not like the actual airport security screening that most people are used to where like you know you have to like take out your laptop and your ipad and whatever so anyway go ahead so here's what's interesting about the third one in the third one they scanned our bags and they actually asked us hey do we have drones in there and we're like what drones yeah actual drones like to fly and take videos um, we're like, no, we don't have drones, but we have a lot of camera equipment. So we quickly open it up um, to show them, yeah, it's just um, like lenses, batteries, and all all our camera gear, which to be fair, looks probably really crowded on these X-ray machines. And you later looked it up. Like if you get caught with a drone. Yeah, I mean, just, just like quick side note. So I was talking with Dane Miller, who's going, who's one of the, you know, he's a, a coach who always has junior athletes. And so he's going in junior worlds in Tashkent in a few weeks. And he mentioned to me, he's like, Hey, I'm going to bring my drone. And I was like, dude, do not bring your drone. No, I hadn't, no. I hadn't even, I hadn't even looked up the laws at this point, but I was just like, dude, don't bring your drone. Um, because I, I, all I knew was that they had asked us like several times, is there a drone here? Is there a drone in here? And, you know, thankfully we didn't have a drone, so it was okay. Mm -hmm. But he was like, Hey, I'm going to bring my drone. And, I was like, don't bring a drone. So then I looked it up and it says, if you have a drone in Uzbekistan, you can get three years of jail. <laughs> and then he was, then Dane Miller was like arguing with me about it. He's like, he's like, I, he's like, it's just like a small, it's like a Mavic mini. Like it's so small. Would they even know it's a drone? Would you, like, why would you even want to risk that? And that, that, that's, that's what I told him. Like, I'm like, dude, Oh yes, it's still a drone. It's <laughs> yes, a, it is. There's no rule in Uzbekistan that says only big drones get into trouble. And and not only that, I was like, I was like, what are you gonna get that's so interesting? Okay, you're you're gonna get like a, an aerial video that like no one cares at all about. Like drone footage just isn't that interesting. You know what I mean? Now drone footage of like maybe some like action sports could be interesting. Let's say you're but doing not like, if there's like three years of jail time involved. Then like no yeah, footage is that interesting. No footage is worth that. Yeah, it could it could be like Lasha snatching two forty, and I I don't want three years of jail time for even if I need a drone to like you know get video of him or whatever. But 
Yeah, it's just like I was like, dude, why are you? Why are you even? Like, I literally just linked you to a page that shows there's jail time for this. Why are you arguing with me about whether a small drone might be okay? Anyway, so uh, yeah, so they were asking about drones. So yeah, go back. Didn't have it. any. Um, so we closed our bags up. Um, went through immigration. At which Exit point we exited immigration. Yeah. Um, and then it was time for the actual security, which you were in front of me in that little line. Yeah, I went through first. And that was your, that's where you won, basically. Because if you waited like another 30 seconds, probably you would have been in the same situation that I was in later. Which is weird because you were, you were pulled aside and I was still standing there like putting my stuff through. It wasn't like I had gone, yeah. you know way into the terminal you got pulled aside just after me and they were looking for me and i was still standing there but somehow no one came and got me i don't i, I was literally about it's true. like 12 feet from the person who was looking for me they pulled me aside um actually the woman was just on a telephone i was like ah mr winter okay yeah he's here okay yeah sit on over there and i was like okay what is happening now just sit on over there somebody's gonna come and i was like oh Okay. Okay. Great. Um, that's exactly what you want to hear in a foreign country on your way out. Um, yeah. So uh, just more police, like two more police officers came, and then they took me down to the basement of the airport. Yeah. So I was there downstairs, and what did, what do I see? My bag and Nat's bag is waiting for me. <laughs> so one of my bags. I have two bags, but it, it, my big one was there. Yeah. So they pulled both of our bags out and they were like, hey, yeah, you need to open this. We need to inspect this because there's like something was suspicious, apparently, like some metal. I was like, okay, no problem. I can do that. I can do it for my bag because Nat's was locked at this point. And I didn't know his combination to open the um, TSA lock. I opened my stuff, was fine. I showed them like my tripods. They asked a bunch of questions, like what did what did I do here in Uzbekistan? And uh, I told me I weightlifting, and then we're like, oh, Ruslan Nurdiev. I was like, yeah, yeah. I just talked to <laughs> Ruslan Nurdiev like three hours ago. <laughs> I was in this. Yeah, hotel we room. we had like literally just been in like his hotel room a few hours before this happened, which was funny. Um, but yeah, everybody knows Ruslan Nurdiev. There, he's a star in Tashkent. So at this point, I think I messaged you. She went back inside, did some paperwork, and she had to rescan some of other bags that were already piling up on the conveyor belt. And at this point, I messaged you. I sent you a quick voice message. Hey, Ned, I'm down here. Um, I think they're looking for you too because your bag is here and they're asking me to open your bag, which I'm not sure I can do. And then you texted me your little combination for the for the log. And yeah, yeah luckily- I uh, save the voice messages if you want to put them in the podcast page. Yeah. Um, I could just play it right now on the podcast if you really no, want it. No, I don't want to. My panic <laughs> voice. <laughs> Was I panic? No, I don't you, know. I really you, remember. You didn't sound panicked. Yeah, so I opened your bags. Um, they expected it. They asked me a bunch of questions about, hey, what is this? And luckily, for example, you have this thing. It's called water pick, which is um, like liquid teeth, tooth It's, it's like a liquid flossing thing, yeah. Yeah. And luckily, you showed me, and I was able to explain to them what it is. Yeah, because it was in this little container. So actually, I, yeah, I explained everything about it, and they were like, fine, sign this. And then our bags went back on a conveyor belt. and. I was relieved to get back inside and somebody brought me back up to the terminal to security and the whole thing, like how long did it take? Maybe 20 minutes, 15, it took a minutes, while, 30 minutes, maybe. Yeah. But luckily we went there early. So it wasn't like we were going to miss our flight or something. Yeah. I was just sitting there and I was just, I was just waiting on the other side of security. And I saw, 
I saw you get pulled aside when I was going through security. Like I kind of looked back and I saw like, hey, Gregor's just like standing there to the side. Hmm. But what, what I figured was, was that basically I thought, because I heard you say something about cameras and this and that. I was like, maybe Gregor said something to them where he was like, hey, I have cameras. Do I need to do anything different? Because I say that to people all the time at security. Um, just, and I thought maybe you had said something and they said, oh, stand aside for a second. We'll like do something different. And I was like, oh, I was like, well, I was like, maybe Gregor said it too soon. Because usually I say it when I'm actually at the security belt rather than you were at the person who was like checking your passport. Right. That was just checking my passport and making sure. So like, yeah. anyway, um, I, I was like, I was like, Gregor probably said something, whatever. And I was like, you know what? I was like, I'm just going to go through because there's no point in, in me like going back to like where you were and like me getting out of like the security actual like line. And I was just like, I was like, I'm just going to go through. I was like, we have like three hours. I was like, Gregor's going to be fine. I was like, I, I, I assume that I was going to see you come through in like five minutes and you're going to be like, Oh, you know, I, you know, they, they, they made me pull apart my bag and show them my cameras and blah, blah, blah. Cause that happens all the time. And so I just figured I was like, I'm just going to go through and just wait for him right on the other side and he'll show up in a few minutes. And then, you know, I wait for like, you know, about five minutes, maybe like five or six people come through. They're not Gregor. And then I'm just like, I'm like, this is weird. Like he's, you know, where, where's Gregor at? And then, you know, five more people come through. And then at this point I like text my fiance. Cause I was just telling her like, Hey, I'm, you know, I'm through security. I'm, you know, on my way home, et cetera, et cetera waiting in the terminal basically. And, and I'm like, I'm like, this is weird, but like, you know, Gregor was right behind me going through security and I'm, I'm like 10 people later and he's still not coming through and I'm just sitting here just waiting for him. And, uh, and, and then maybe like five or 10 minutes later was when I got the voice message from you. And then all I was thinking was, I was like, I was like, please don't make me go back <laughs> through security. Cause Security is such a pain in the ass with all this camera stuff. Like, yeah, it is. You know, I, I have to pull it out and put it all, you know, back into the bag. And, and it's just like a hassle. I end up, you know, my stuff ends up in like five bins because you can't fit everything in, in one bin, you know, like for people who just have like a normal bag where they take off their shoes. I mean, security is pretty easy. It wouldn't be a big deal to go back, go back through it. But I was thinking like, oh, crap, they're going to come find me. And then they're going to make me like go downstairs, just like show the bag to them and blah, blah, blah. It's like, ah, oh, and, you know, keep in mind, too, that it's, you know, this was a 2, 2.40 a.m. flight that we were taking. At mm. the time that we're going through security, it was like 11 something because we were there way early. And, you know, I'm starting to feel like a little bit tired and you know, the last thing I want to do is like deal with like stupid security again. Like it's just, it's just annoying. So I, I quickly texted Gregor the code and I was like, you can just open the bag up and just show them. Cause I mean, Gregor knows what's in my bag as well as I do pretty much. So, um, yep. you know, it's weird. I'm surprised they didn't really question the, the viral thing. They didn't see that. Yeah. They didn't see that. Like they opened a microphone that's case. A, that's a massive box in there. The viral thing. But anyway, the, uh, yeah. So Thankfully, Gregor was able to open it and show them what was in there. Sign a bunch of paperwork and then, yeah, was let back out. And all the stuff made it home. As far as I can tell, I'm not missing anything. No, it's all good. Um, so, But yeah, I mean, for the first like five, six minutes, I was like, oh, God, this is looking way more involved than I wanted it to be. But then I was like, oh, okay, just, they were pretty cool with me, too. I mean, 
pretty they were not like hostile or anything it's something like that's not ordinary i mean i've never been pulled aside to like go to the basement of an airport i mean yeah. one thing that happens to me all the time is i put my bag through like the security scanning thing i'm talking like real security not the the three theater securities i mean technically they're all kind of theater security but like the first yeah. three at tashkent are true theater yeah um the the fourth one which is what i would call the real security at that one which happens to me all the time is i put the stuff through they see that it's just like a huge pile of like glass and metal and batteries because it's just like lenses you know et cetera et cetera and then they they flip out because you know they're not used to seeing that much you know camera gear yeah and and then they put it through twice and then they ask me questions about the batteries and then they hold me there for five minutes while they look up are these batteries like too big to be on a plane and Which then they're not. you know and then they like yeah they're not they swab them for um you know explosives and they do this and they do that and like uh, it's been plenty of times that i've had like an extreme what i would call a castle at security that's that's happened to me i mean at, at least 10 times but I've never been pulled aside for my check bag. I mean, I've always, you know, I've, there's been plenty of times where I've had my, my check bag open because they, there's like a little card in there that says like your bag was screened, but I've never, you know, once you drop off your check bag, usually that's it. You don't see it again until the other end. I mean, the scariest part is when they take your passport and your ticket and you see the person leaving out of sight with your passport and your ticket. So um, that's always... I've never, been be that, I've never been that worried about that. I mean, that happened to me. Remember when we were in the Turkish airport on the way there? Oh, right. Yeah. yeah they yeah, took yeah. my passport and my visa because like they didn't trust my Uzbek visa, which isn't isn't really a visa. It's like a, a visa invitation letter to get the visa at the airport. And by the way, I'm going to have to go through that again because I'm getting another one of those letters for Junior Worlds. Nice. So I'm sure they'll be suspicious again. At least what's nice about this time is I'll be able to say, Hey, look at this Uzbek visa from a month ago. I did the exact same thing a month ago. Like this is this is a real Uzbek visa invitation letter, you know. But yeah, of course, the, the airline employees they're not they're not like hostile. They're just you know they're just worried that that they're gonna let someone onto a plane who doesn't have a visa, and mm -hmm. then that person's gonna get turned around, and then their boss is gonna yell at them because they're the one who let me on the plane when I don't have a visa, you know. Right. What I mean? So like yeah. I don't I don't blame the the employees for being careful when you know they're they're told to look in the passport for a visa and there's not a visa there and I'm showing them a piece of paper that says I will get a visa. You know what I mean? Like I understand why they're skeptical. So I don't blame them, but uh it it might make the conversation a little bit easier given that I have one from a month ago. Yeah, luckily everybody made it home. Everybody except one official from Bangladesh who's maybe still <laughs> stranded in in an airport. Yeah, she, so basically she said that she was in the airport yesterday. I haven't seen, you know, let me double check her Facebook now just to see if she has posted mm -hmm. any updates. She, she likes to post frequent updates on Facebook. This was basically one of all, one of the situations we were worried about, like oh, being stranded somewhere or like quarantine rules changing mid-flight or something. Or getting a positive yeah. test back and not knowing what to do. Right. I mean, I would have known what to do. I would have, I would have just stayed in in Tashka and ate a crap ton of of plov. But yeah, you know, I, I I was man. We found some great plov at the end of the trip. 
by the way, man. Oh my God. That, I'm so jealous. I mean, we were on, I would love some good plov. Yeah. We, I've had plov at a bunch of places in Tashkent. Now, if you include the 2018 trip and the place that hmm. we, we got the, the plov from towards the end of the trip is honestly the, the best plov I've ever had. And I've had like a bunch of, uh, you know, I've had it all over like Brooklyn. I've had it at least three or four places in Brooklyn. And I've had it at a bunch of other places. I've had it in other Russian. Like the thing about Plav is like, even though it's, you know, I'm not going to try and get into an argument, you know, discussion of the origins of Plav, but it's a, it's, it, it, it was kind of like Soviet Russia that kind of like gave Plav. It's like Uzbek origins. Like it wasn't necessarily an Uzbek food before that. It was actually probably a Persian food throughout all, all uh, Russia and former Soviet countries and everything. Plav is viewed as like an, an, an Uzbek food. And a lot of ways it is an Uzbek food. And so I've had it all over Russia, all over other places. Um, and the place that we got it from the last few nights is the best one. And literally the whole time, literally every bite, Gregor and I are both saying to ourselves like, oh my God, this is so good. So flavorful. You have no idea. <laughs> like how do they get these flavors into these, into these meats and into the rice? Oh my God. It, it's unreal. It's Perfect. so good. Like I'm going to mm. tell everyone, everyone at junior world is like in for a treat. We're going to like just order like a, you know, a few buckets of it or whatever one day. Because here's the other thing too. It only costs about $2 for a portion. And it's a big portion too. It's a pretty big portion. I, I well, tried with a lot two, of meat, but like, I couldn't do it. Um, the version was called a chai, what's it called? Chaikonsky plov. Which, and Chaikonsky plov. Chaikonsky. When I, when I said, I asked an Uzbek guy, I was like, I have a question. Like we ordered from this place and, They had a few different plov options on the menu, and we got the one that said Tchaikovsky plov. Do you know what that is? Because like, I didn't really know if that's like a well-known term for it. And he said something like Tchaikona plov, and Tchaikona is the, essentially the word for like Russian kind of like tea house. So, mm -hmm. or maybe Uzbek tea house. I'm not even sure. But I remember being in, and this is another place I've had good good plov, and I actually think you were there for this. But when we were in um, when we were in Moscow at one point, we went to this place that was called like Chaikona Number One. It's like the name of the restaurant. Do you remember that? Not right now. Okay. Um, but anyway, we went to like Chaikona Number One, and that's like the name of the restaurant. And that place had pretty good plov too. And so I think that it's like kind of like just a style of plov. And of course, like the. Um, You know, when we were at Maxim Agapitov's house in 2015, he had a random Uzbek mm -hmm. guy living there, and uh, which was kind of interesting because he was like, "What food do you want for dinner?" When we were driving back, and we were both like, "Oh, we, we said plov. We'll, we'll take plov if you can, if you know some know someone who can make it." He's like, "Yeah." He's like, "I have an Uzbek guy <laughs> living in my garage. I'll get him to do it." And so, um, you know, the the style of plov that he made was very similar to to this style. Yeah. And anyway, so the yeah. but the the place that we got it from was just unreal, just so good. It's like, we it's had a like bunch of times. Kamalon, uh, it's K O M O L O N, and mm -hmm. I mean just unreal plov. And like, I I would just I'd probably like pass out if we go back and they're they're like, oh sorry, we're you know not not making plov these <laughs> you know these two weeks. I would just. I would be upset. I, I would, yeah, I would just, I would throw a fit. I'd, you know, throw my chair out the window <laughs> of the hotel room or something. But so yeah. good. How'd we get on the plot? Yeah, that was our airport story. Yeah, that was, that was the airport story. People got the idea. And then, and then we, um, 
you know, just kind of hung out in the airport for a few hours after that. But then we got into the plane and that was the last I saw of Gregor. So I didn't see him in, in Istanbul. Yeah. Yeah. In Istanbul, we just ran to our gates and I didn't have internet. So yeah, I pretty much, this was frustrating actually with Istanbul. So like, I, I remember this just because of the, the situation, but I got, or we, our plane arrived at gate A3. My flight to the U.S. was leaving out of A5. So literally right next to it. I could see the plane. Mm-hmm. And because of how the transit system works, I had to, you know, get off the plane, walk, you know, you know, all the way down the terminal, then go through, walk, walk even more, go through the transit security, which thankfully in Istanbul wasn't bad either time. Like they weren't too strict. Um, and they didn't make me like yeah. tear apart my camera bag. I went through transit security. Then I had to like walk back literally on basically the, the, you know, the other, basically on the other floor, you know, one level is one, you know, like the higher level is the pre security and lower level is post security. So I had to like mm. walk through everything um, again and then go right back to where I was just et cetera. But so I basically had about, you know, a mile of walking and, who knows, maybe like 40 minutes of process um, just to get back to the exact same spot I was in. But then I had a, you know, a really smooth flight back. Um, I guess one thing I should mention too, is that, so our, our plane left Tashkent or it was scheduled to leave Tashkent two forty in the morning. We actually probably took off at, you know, three or something like that. And mm-hmm. I stayed up the entire flight on purpose. Same. Um, I mean, not on purpose, but I can't sleep on planes. And yeah, it was so packed back there. You have no idea. And it was yelling and people got into arguments with the cabin crew over some things I did not understand because I don't speak the language. But it was really a zoo back there. All right. Well, it was nice and empty where I was. Um, nice. And uh, and I guess for the listeners who are wondering, like I, I tend to fly business, but I tend to fly using points. Um, like I, I haven't bought a business class ticket. Other than I can think of one I bought because it was just a really cheap, really cheap fare, et cetera. But typically I'm flying on points. So I was on, on points and I was up there with one of the guys from the IWF was up there. And then there was one woman who was seated a few rows ahead of me. And then the only other person was this Uzbek. I'm assuming he's like a, like an Uzbek right, government yeah. official because he got on the plane and there were three or four police officers with him. Not in a way that they were escorting him as in he was a criminal, but in a way that like they were, uh, he was, he got like a police escort to get through the airport faster. And so he got on the plane and they were all like carrying his bags for him. And he gets, he gets on the, he sits down basically directly across from me. You know, I'm on the window seat on one side. He's on the window seat all the way on the other side. He was kind of in front of the IWF guy. And, um, And then, you know, they put all his bags away for him and they all like shake his hands and like kind of like are like bowing at him a little bit, kind of like thanking him for like allowing them to carry his bags. And then like <laughs> and then they they all get off the plane and then he's sitting there. I have no idea who he was. I, I looked up um, just because I was curious. I looked up just like all, like all like the top Uzbek government officials. I, I knew he wasn't mm-hmm. like the president because, you know, the president would be on a private plane. But um like private government plane, but I figured he must be some like high up, like minister. He's got to be something, someone important in, in Tashkent or in Uzbek government, but I didn't figure out who he was. And obviously I wasn't going to like take his picture to figure it out. So anyway, so I had a, 
you know, Uzbek official with me up there. But anyway, I stayed up the whole flight and on purpose, even though I really, really was like dipping out at certain points during that flight. Um, mm. I stayed up the whole flight. It was about a five hour flight to Istanbul. We landed at, a, at the equivalent of about 8 a.m. Tashkent time. And then I got yeah. on, I basically did like the whole like 40 minute walk from the same place to the same place thing. Then uh, probably like 20 minutes later, we boarded. And then really within about five minutes after taking off, I put my seat back and went to sleep. And I slept for almost eight hours straight. And that's incredible. You know, on a 10 hour flight. So I woke up, that's I incredible. woke up and we were over Canada. Um, wow. And I have no memory of the in-between and the, I should mention to viewers, the reason I do this is because, you know, here's the problem. So if I, if I sleep on that first flight, then, you know, think about it. We're landing at, at 8 AM Tashkent time. Tashkent's nine hours ahead of us East coast. So that means we were landing in Istanbul at 11 PM East coast time. So that means I would have been sleeping for like the evening of East coast time which you don't want to do. You don't want to sleep from, if you're trying to change time zones and avoid jet lag, you don't want to sleep from 7 PM to 10 PM. You're on yeah. the timing zone. You're trying to switch to, that's just a bad idea. You're going to just have problems. So I was like, you know what? I'm just going to power through and I'm going to stay awake because the thing is, is that our flight was taking off at 7:45 AM, uh, Istanbul time, which is the equivalent of like 12, 45 a.m. East Coast. So I was like, if I can make it to the second flight, I can pretty much just lay down and go to sleep and be super tired because I stayed up all night for my local time. And then um, I can just sleep through the flight. And then first of all, the trip home will go faster because I will, I won't remember most of the second flight. And then also when I wake up, like I woke up at the equivalent because we landed at 11 a.m. You know, at JFK. I mean, I woke up at around 9 a.m. East Coast time. So I pretty much slept from 1 a.m. to 9 a.m. East Coast time, which is pretty much perfect. And then yeah. I didn't have any jet lag. I just went to sleep. Uh, that was, This was on Monday of this week. Now it's Thursday. So I went to sleep Monday night and was just tired at the normal time. Woke up at the normal time on Tuesday, and I haven't had any jet lag whatsoever. And where people mess up with jet lag is... The, th the thing about jet lag is you can't sleep when you want to sleep. You know what I mean? Because if you yeah. sleep when you want to sleep, you're going to have bad sleep for like five, six, seven nights sometimes because sleeping just drags out way longer. Yeah. yeah you don't nap. Don't do any of that. If you travel uh, east. Yeah. Yeah. You can't do the whole like. I'm going to nap for a little bit. You can't do the, I'm really tired. I couldn't stay awake. Blah, blah, blah. Like, being good at switching time zones is much, much more about like, can you keep yourself awake when you're really tired? Like I was really tired on that overnight flight. Like, I'm not going to lie. I'm not going to sit here and say like, Oh, you know, I stayed up from 3am to 8am after finishing a week of competition and work. And I was on like a dark plane, And it was easy for me to stay awake because it wasn't, it wasn't easy. Like there were, there was definitely several periods on that flight where I, I could have easily just like laid back and been asleep in about five seconds. But, wow. you know, if you want to comfortably change time zones quickly, you just have to be able to stay awake when you don't want to stay awake, which is 
difficult, um, especially in those yeah. situations. Like most people would dip out on that plane flight and that's why they would struggle. Like what, what would happen to them is they would dip out on that plane flight. Then they wouldn't be as tired for the second flight, but then they would get like two or three hours on the second flight. But then they would land at 11 a.m. at JFK and then they would get like super tired at 3 or 4 p.m. that day because they didn't get enough sleep on the overnight flight, you know, and then they would, you know, take, you know, then they'd be like, oh, I'm super tired. I need to like take a quick nap. And then they wouldn't sleep well overnight because they took a nap. You know, it's like you put it this way with with changing time zones, like changing, you know, nine time zones or whatever, something like that with changing two or three. It's not a big deal. But when you're changing nine you have to adapt as fast as possible. You know what I mean? You have to, mm -hmm. you have to, as soon as you possibly can get onto that new time zone and don't break that new time zone, you know, like stick where you only sleep during your normal sleeping hours in that new time zone. And that's what will get you switched as fast as possible. Like on the way over, I actually messed up because I, I was really tired and the first, the first night we were there, I slept from 5 a.m. until 5 p.m. And yeah, that was hours. I was, I was just out. Yeah, Greg, room. Gregor was awake. Like he could verify. I slept for 12 straight hours. Um, yeah. And I messed up. That's not what you're supposed to do. And that's the reason why I had two or three nights of bad sleep. Not, you know, partly because the hotel room was too hot, but partly because I messed up. Like what I should have done is it's fine for me to go to sleep at 5 a.m. because. I mean, the plane got in at, at one and by the time we got out of the airport, got to the hotel and got into bed, it was, I mean, that's what time it was. What, what I should have done is gone to sleep at five and I should have set an alarm for 11 or 12. And that way I get up. I didn't really get a full night's sleep, but I got enough sleep to get through the afternoon and evening. And then I should have gone to sleep that night at like 10 or 11 and then I would have slept normally. So that was a mistake that I you know, I didn't, I just didn't anticipate it. I thought I would, I thought I would just naturally just wake up at noon and I'd be fine, but I just slept straight through to five and I was literally shocked by it. But that's an example of what not to do. Don't let yourself just sleep unlimited hours the first day. And what I did on the way back is an example of what to do, which is stay more disciplined about when you're sleeping and sleep during the overnight hours, you're in your time zone, you'll have no problems. Anyway, that's my rant about how to change time zones. And I think that was the podcast. Thank you for listening. And thank you, Ned and uh, Dr. Boffer for joining the ATG podcast once again. Yeah, thanks for listening. We'll be back in a few weeks with, with more podcasts, I'm sure. If we can book flights to Tashkent. I mean, I have a flight. Well, I, I don't have one yet. Gregor, will, Gregor will have a flight. Yeah, you'll, you'll have a flight. It's going to be crazy because yeah. we went a year, over a year without competitions. And the next few weeks are going to be busy. And then there's a lull. But I think the fall will be busy as well. Buff, are you oh, going yeah. to go to Columbia? <laughs> no, absolutely not. I'm not going to Cali. <laughs> okay. So no ATG way. won't have anyone in Cali to, to do a podcast okay. with the other Nat from Hook Group? Listeners, if you are listening uh, from Cali, Columbia, um, yes. send me an email. Because we need some footage from Kelly. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> All right. Uh, There's got to be somebody to find. There's got to, I mean, have you been to Kelly, Nat? I have been there, yeah. I've been to the sport complex where they're holding this. Okay. I'd never even heard of Kelly. Aside from like as a shortened form of California. So I was, it was totally unfamiliar to me.
I mean, Cali is a big, oh, big yeah. city in Colombia. It's like, you know, obviously Bogota is the, by far the biggest, um, but, you know, Medellin and Cartagena slash Cartagena kind of has another city nearby called like Barranquilla or something, or something like that. I think that's what it's called. And then um, Cali is obviously like the other big population center. The The junior Pan Ams that they've, they, they've held, or not junior, youth Pan Ams. They held youth Pan Ams in a city called Palmyra like a few years in a row. <laughs> And that's actually mm-hmm. where the Kayla Stefano video that now has like five something million views. That's where, <laughs> that, that's where that's where that video was shot. It was shot in Palmyra, but so the most popular weightlifting video was shot in, in Colombia, oh. in Palmyra, Colombia, so famous place now. Palmyra is like forty five minutes like east of of Cali, so it's basically like a, a suburb almost of Cali in some ways. Um, but anyway, yeah, the. Uh, um, the meet in, in Cali should be, should be interesting. I get the feeling I I've been telling Gregor this because Gregor has bad FOMO about missing anything, especially now in like the post pandemic when, you know, all the major weightlifting, uh, media companies are, you know, a little bit starved for content. Um, mm-hmm. Gregor has really bad FOMO for this stuff. And I've been telling him that what's going to happen in Cali is there will be about five at most eight lifts that you're going to be like, man, I wish I had a video of that. Yeah, man. And that'll be it. <laughs> Beyond that, you're going to be like, I'm glad I didn't go. So it's, it's a tough thing as like a media company. It's like, do you want to sink, you know, one to $2,000 into hotels and flights and other expenses and, you know, a week of your time to get like five to eight videos. And the answer is, is yeah. it's absolutely not worth it. But would be nice to have these five to eight lifts on video. Well, yeah. I mean, it would be nice, but it's not worth it. You know what I mean? It's kind of like just yeah. not just not going to be worth it. Um, I am mm. sending someone, but that's primarily as like an equipment uh, distribution. Mule. Deal. Oh, yeah. It's, 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 yeah. It's basically like to get... The, the nice thing about this meet in Cali is that people are coming there from all over the world. And so, yeah. you know, I can get things to people from many different countries um, in one spot. And so it's also kind of a key thing because we can kind of get equipment to people before the Olympics and kind of get them fresh versions before the Olympics, stuff like that. So, um, you know, that's that's really... Is there a start list for Cali yet? There's not a start list, but there there is it's like an entry. There's an entry list, which is not public, which okay. we probably shouldn't discuss. The main reason I'm doing it is really just to get people stuff, not to go for the the videos. But of course, the videos are nice because, like Gregor said, there's there's going to be some, or like I said, there's going to be some lit yeah that that are good. Like uh, it's not going to be all mediocre. Like I'll, I'll bet there will be some good performances there because of. For example, Max Lang is going there from Germany. He's traveling to Cali, wow. and he has to perform well. Yeah. If he wants to go to Tokyo. Yeah. So if people, you know, the, the, basically the people who have the incentive, who need points, need a good points performance for Tokyo, obviously they're going to have mm. to try. Mm-hmm. You know, the people that don't need it aren't going to try. Um, and the people who have to try, a lot of them will have just competed at their uh, continental meet. So yeah, so most people entered this entry list. Um, we have one more emergency competition that we could attend later on, and some of these names, like we we know, are not going to show up there. 
But, yeah, I mean, like Maddie Rogers is on the entry list, but she's not going. Right. Because why would she go? She's qualified. Yeah. She had a great meet. Yeah. What, why, why would why would she go to Cali? <laughs> I'm, I'm not saying anything bad about Cali, but who would want to travel in this COVID environment to Cali to if there's no reason for to- for Tokyo? You know what I mean? Like her focus is Tokyo. You know, Cali's not not a relevant meet for her otherwise. Um, I'm sure if she had to go for point, she would go. But, uh, you know, she mm. doesn't. So anyway, but yeah, I guess that's the end of the podcast. I got to go. I actually have to be somewhere in 20 minutes. So. All right. Um, thanks for talking, guys. Um, see you soon. In another episode of the ATG podcast about all things and a little bit of weightlifting. <laughs> Just a tad bit. Okay. Bye. <laughs>